You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast about the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 22, 1999's Magnolia, the first movie directed exclusively by cocaine. Martin. Yes. I'd like to get you on a slow boat to China all to myself. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, how you doing, man? Doing all right. We're here to talk about uh, your least favorite director, Paul Thomas Anderson. (laughs) So Martin, just so we can kind of pitch this to our audience, you once told me that he is the worst American filmmaker of all time. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) Can Um, you defend that position right now? No, he's... um, (laughs) Thank you for setting me up in such a wonderful way. Um... (laughs) He's what are a, friends for? I know. I love you. He's a filmmaker, though, honestly, and I've told you this since I first met you, um, that I have trouble connecting with emotionally, that uh, I respect him as a filmmaker from the beginning. I think he does amazing work. I think he's gotten only better as a, as a technical director as, sure. as well. Some of the stuff he does, man, we just finished watching Inherent Vice again and watching The Master. It's pretty mind-blowing cinema. Um I think it's a fact, and again, it's, it's not has something to do with talent or, or writing skill or directing skill. I don't always enjoy the worlds he creates. Um, okay, and I, I get I have trouble getting in on the tone. And it's funny because I to, I told this to a friend from work, and I said, oh, "I'm not a big because Licorice Pizza was coming out." And I said, "I'm not a huge PT fan, PTA fan," and she's like, "You seem like." Like the exact demographic for PT Anderson, like film major. It is true. Like I, that's and that's what's so weird to me is I feel it. And like you, like two of my best friends from Atlanta, who are all like film people I respect. Like he's their favorite director. Like they are, like they're obsessed with him. There, I'm not saying he's yours, but they're obsessed with. I mean, he's certainly one of mine. But I mean, he fits into that whole, <clears throat> let's say, uh, film bro yes, mold. Absolutely, the guys who love like. Fincher and Kubrick. Yeah. And like, those are the ones that whenever you ask them, like who are your favorite directors? They instantly hold up like PTA. Quentin is another one. Like they, he fits right into that mold because I think part of it is coming from that nineties video store brat era. Uh, you know, a lot of guys our age grew up watching his movies, uh, from, really boogie nights on and then went back. Like if they're anything like me, they saw boogie nights and then went back and watched uh heart eight, AKA Sydney on videotape realized this dude's like 
their next like kind of Scorsese crime type Scorsese who also fits into the film bro mold, let's yep. say. Uh, but I hesitate to call it basic taste, but it is to your friend's point, like it, it, it fits the stereotype. Yeah, absolutely. And not that you're the stereotype, but I mean like you, I mean, got white guy, Went to school, went to graduate school. Both for film. <laughs> wants to write and direct and loves movies. Like, yeah, dude, I mean, you seem like a film bro on paper, but we both know them rivers run a lot deeper. Well, I appreciate that. Well, it's it's funny because it reminds me of a conversation I had with a, a, my friend Paul I used to bartend with. And he says, do you like Kate Bush? I said, Paul, look at me. I have a beard. I have a master's degree and I'm bartending. What the fuck do you think? And it was just that same kind of thing is like, that is exactly the mold for a male Kate right. Bush fan. I feel the same way about PTA. Yeah. He's almost like, I know that this is probably a, a goofy analogy given his uh, musical collaborations, but he is kind of like the radio head of directors. Like he's. Yeah. Already oh, very to a degree, but still accessible on like a pop level. Um, he has a name that is recognized both within kind of the, uh, let's say, film Twitter sphere while also having a mainstream kind of recognition. Like if I said Paul Thomas Anderson to my mom and dad, they still know he's the guy who made Boogie Nights. Right. You know, he's the guy who made There Will Be Blood because they were still big cultural touchstones uh, across the board. Yeah. Absolutely. But we're here to talk about Magnolia, his most uh, coke kid opus set in the San Fernando Valley where he grew up. And you even texted me while you were watching it saying you kind of struggled with it a little bit, even on this go round. Yeah, absolutely. I um, So I saw this for the first time. <laughs> Actually, I, I fucked up. It was, it was the double VHS set. Sure. Um, and I got it from the library when I was in high school and I put the second tape in first and didn't realize that I'd fucked up. So I watched the second half of Magnolia first and then went back and watched the first part. I watched it again since then. Um, at that age, I think I was 17. Um, yeah, was same. very much my shit. Um, it, it clicked with me. Um, I had seen Boogie Nights at that point. I had not seen Heart Eight. Um, but I also, at that point, liked Boogie Nights because everyone else did. I do like Boogie Nights, but I think that was definitely, I was trying to, to prove something. We talked about that earlier um, a couple days ago about liking something because you think you should. Um, Almost and, like homework. It's like it, it, you think that if you, you tell somebody that you love Infinite Jest, yes. it instantly like, impresses them because you read Infinite Jest. And you're that kind of person. Yeah, you, know? you get it. And watching Magnolia when I was that age... Um, in, and a person at that point, like I think I was two years away from going to college. Like I want to be a filmmaker. I still had that that, yeah, na that naivete of I can be a filmmaker like this. Like all I have to do is try, and, and I'll be this big. You kind of have that that again that naivete before the real world comes crashing down on you. But I, I liked. I think I was very into that mosaic kind of filmmaking um, at the time. The Altman esque kind of ensemble. Yes, and 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 the, and the you know interconnectivity like that's around the era that I saw Amoris Peros for the first time, you know, like sure. that kind of, that kind of storytelling. Well, it's also that post pulp fiction to yes. bring up Tarantino again. Like this was more or less in vogue throughout the nineties after pulp fiction because it was such a massive, uh, both hit and cultural kind of sensation, um, that everybody was allowed to more or less make 
their big sprawling character driven opus if they were quote unquote like the the next big thing, let's say. Absolutely. Um, watching it, this I, it had been years since I had watched it, and watching it this time, if I'd mentioned this before we started recording, was like you said, it's definitely like the the coke kid kind of of movie, and it feels like the movie I would have made in college. You know, yeah. If I mean, no way. Even now, I could write a script that good, um, even at my age. Um, but that's the film I would have wanted to make. I think. And now I think my tastes have changed somewhat. Sure. And when I texted that, I was taking a break. I went out to do something else and I came back and I think the film finishes strong. Um, I think it's probably about 20 minutes too long still. Um, I think (laughs) Anderson actually agrees with you because there was a recent interview um, where I think during this, this uh, licorice pizza tour that he's on right now, um, where somebody basically asked him like, Oh, you were known for being this wild and crazy kind of young filmmaker. If you could go back in time and like talk to that younger version of yourself, what would you say? And his answer was basically like, calm the hell down and maybe cut 20 minutes out of Magnolia. Boom. Like he, he gets it. Yeah. But it's also an incredibly personal film that came literally right after his dad, not only divorced his mom, but then died of cancer immediately after. I mean, Jason Robard, the whole, all the Jason Robards, Tom Cruise stuff in Magnolia is, is almost directly based on his dad, who was uh, Ernie Anderson. He was a television uh, personality. He was actually a horror host. Mm. Uh, named Goulardi in Cleveland, I believe. And that's where Paul Thomas Anderson from Magnolia on uh, calls his company uh, that he produces under the uh, Goulardi Film Company. It's named for his dad because this is very much him working out like the issues that he had because his dad was only on this like last marriage for a year before he died. You know, so you can see... Uh, maybe th- him projecting a lot of his feelings on like, say like the Linda Partridge character who is played by Julianne Moore. Like that's supposed to be the woman the who stole one, yeah. his dad away from his, his mom. Um, and, and you could see like, because the, the entire movie and frankly, let's face it, this dad issues is almost like the defining uh, theme that runs through a lot of PTA's work is that you can see him, uh, almost rising to an early crescendo with this film because there's a lot of dad stuff in it, like between uh, the, the quiz kid and his father. Uh, you have obviously Jason Robards and Tom Cruise. You have, I would, um, I would say also um, Philip Seymour Hoffman with Jason Robards. There's yeah, a father son thing going there a as well. surrogate thing happening there. And then um, with Claudia and Jimmy Gator, uh, and the now that takes a decidedly darker turn uh, as the movie goes on and and embellishes. Obviously, I I don't think PTA. I mean, he's never publicly talked about anything about like molestation or right. anything. But even there, like there's dad issues. It's all about kids running from either their uh, absent or abusive fathers. Well, there's something I noticed too watching all the, I watch these films in, in order of, of chronologically when they were released. And did you watch all nine? All except Phantom Thread. Okay. Um, I watched I, seven of them. So I had seen Phantom Thread most recently and I said, I need to give a lot of these another chance. You know, sure. that I hadn't seen since the theater. Uh, and I'm glad I did because most of the ones I, I that I kind of got back into like, wow, this actually 
is a lot, I connected with it more the second time around. Um, I think I'm different too than 2007. Uh, I've changed, oh, sure. You know, 20, 24 to 38 is quite a, a big difference in in what you like. And um, but, well, and I mean, like with Magnolia, I'm not going to lie. Like my reaction revisiting it for this podcast was different from when I saw it on 35 millimeter. They played it at the Ritz downtown mm. when uh, Mondo put out the uh, record for the soundtrack. Yeah. They did a special screening there. And I went and saw it on 35 millimeter. And honestly, that was the roughest sit that I've ever had with it. Even though I still love the movie, that was the one where it clicked for me how much of like a young, brash uh, film student uh, kind of work that this movie is. Like it, parts of it did grate on me a little bit. Parts of it did feel pretentious and a little overblown. I feel like his writing gets away from him a little bit in Magnolia, especially with the profanity. He almost goes full Rob Zombie, especially with Julianne Moore. Like Julianne Moore goes fucking nuclear ham so in this movie. That's actually when I paused and I texted you. She's so shrill in this film. The pharmacy scene between her and Pat Healy is is admittedly rough. Like people really love it, but I find that one kind of not quite nails on a chalkboard, but it's the one even during this revisit where I'm like, this is, this is it. This okay. is the part that I don't like. Okay. I'm really glad you said that because that is exactly what I stopped at. Yeah. Um, Cause it was that scene followed by her yelling at Philip Seymour Hoffman when she goes home. And, well, and, and both of those scenes, I thought, like you said, it's very ham. And the thing is, I love her. Like, I think her performance yeah. in everything, especially in Boogie Nights, I mean, the, the maternal slash sexy thing that she brings, she's like kind of a, an anchor in that film. Um, I think of like goodness. Uh, and like she does represent she's some the dark. Heart, the beating heart of Boogie Nights, or at least the 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 nucleus that everything else kind of floats around. Yeah. Say. She was, she's the real star too. Yeah. Which they kind of even don't have he to say. He obviously loves her. Well, she's, she's fantastic, but this is actually, I think one of her, my least performances by her favorite performances in a, as a whole, because a lot of it is her so drugged out. So like, she, she, she does it, but the lawyer's office scene is, is rough too. Yeah. All that. She's going on. She's like, I, I love him now. I fall in love with I him. I love him so much, but you need to take me out of, well, I've done so many terrible things. I've sucked men's cocks. Like her delivery of that. I'm like, all right. And she hitches on it. Oh, cocks like that. It's like, all right. But again, it's everything about this movie is cranked to 11 the entire time. So like you get it. It's actually of a piece with the rest of it. Yes. I just don't think it's very good. You know, actually, my other least favorite part of the movie, I think the one character that I, I think how it ends up works really well for the narrative is Quiz Kid Donnie. Um, uh, I, See, I, I love Macy in this fucking movie. I love Macy in everything he does. I think he's really good as this role. I don't like the you were talking about earlier about the pulp fiction kind of the these mosaic narratives the sure. Altman as that everyone was doing his is the most uh when he breaks his teeth that sense of like dramatic irony that he you know was going into and it's like it's one of those things where it's like oh my god how crazy he broke all his teeth when he was going to it just stuff like that i don't that. think it lingers on it long enough though to be like it's only that part actually only clicked with me on like the second or third viewing when I first saw this movie because I went, Oh, he broke his teeth. And maybe that is speaking to your point because again, I'm a 17 year old fucking dunce right. who was able to put two and two together. They are some, maybe put a little more subtlety into your movie, but th that stuff doesn't bother me. I thought you were going to go to the whole 
you were going to tell me you disliked the whole bar scene between him and Brad, the bartender. No, I love that scene. Well, Henry and Henry Gibson is just fucking Nashville, baby. He's, and also the burbs, my favorite movies. Like he's, you know, the doctor, you know, he's so great. Well, he's connecting right there directly with Altman. Yes. You know, very much. And you know, it's funny you bring up Altman though. I mean, obviously that, um, he's playing the same sandbox to Altman, <laughs> you know, a well, lot. I mean, it, it is like one chromosome away from being shortcuts. Yes. And, and like you said, we were talking yesterday, but like, there's definitely some serious Nashville elements in this and in other films. And it's funny because Altman's a notably another, licorice pizza that yes. we just talked about on our top 10 list. Yes, very much. So there's something Altman's another filmmaker that on paper I should like more. And, uh, I, there's a few of his like Nashville's top 10 for me, like top 10 favorite film ever made. No, I know where you're going, but a lot of now. these films just, I do not click with at all. He, he almost has the Soderbergh uh, mm-hmm. syndrome for me in that he's so prolific that you can't help, but produce misses every now and again to where like you like watch quintet. them. Yeah. Like you, like you, or, <laughs> or like, quartet, sorry. or ready to wear yeah. is the other one that he made about the fashion industry in the early nineties. Popeye. Uh, doc, doc, uh, <laughs> well, people love Popeye though, yeah, and all and PTA loves Popeye and even uses um olive oils he needs me in Punch Drunk Love. So like clearly that's you know on PTA's mind and his short list of things that he loves. But like Dr. T and the Women, not a great movie. Interesting, or even his his last film, which I liked more than most people, uh Prairie Home Companion. Yeah. But he he, when you produce that much material, you can't help but fuck a few up. Well, no, and, and I agree with that. I'm also saying, though, that in some of the films that are beloved of him, I like don't... Which, I, which one of Altman's do you just not... I, I, McCabe and I don't... We just don't get along. Oh, fuck off. And you know I me, mean? I'm a huge Western fan, too. McCabe and I don't click. That's cr- that, I'm actually... My mind's a little blown by that one. Just because... Like you just said, because it's you. You <laughs> love Western so much that that not clicking with you... It baffles me. To it a doesn't. Degree. It that doesn't. Mash doesn't that much. Really. Um, but I did. You love Nashville though. But Nashville, I think, was one of those films that was kind of like the key for Altman for me. Like, sure, there's because a Rosetta Stone quality to it. After I watched that, I went back and watched stuff. Like, I think I saw Long Goodbye for the first time after seeing that, and I was like, oh, this is fucking genius. Yeah, because you just saw Long Goodbye. In the last few years, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that was like, I was mad I'd wait. And I also didn't realize that Lee Brackett had written it, who's like one of my favorite screenwriters in the history of cinema. Yeah. Um, writer of The Big Sleep. And I was like, oh shit. Um, and that movie's absolutely fantastic and has a lot of connections with a certain film we'll be talking about today as well. I mean, Hair Advice like, is. Uh, California Split. I've actually never seen that. Ooh, I think you'd like that one a lot, especially if you like Long Goodbye, just because you have uh, Elliot Gould totally. The George Siegel too? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, as the gamblers. I heard that's really great. It's pretty solid. But let's uh, Sorry, get back to... Sorry, sick on PT Anderson. Well, no, you have to talk about Altman because, I mean, apparently too, I don't know if this is uh, apocryphal legend or not, uh, but I believe that during his, his last years, uh, when he was directing Prairie Home Companion, I believe he was wheelchair bound and... and not losing his facilities, but was having difficulty like completing the project. And, and I believe Anderson helped him on set, finish the movie. That's cool. So, I mean, yeah, to work with your absolute kind of, uh, let's say 
mentor or influence. Tuesdays with Robert Altman. (laughs) Though to be fair, the main influence that he always cites, because as we'll talk about with uh, Heart 8 and Boogie Nights, everybody goes Scorsese, Scorsese, Scorsese. He actually cites Jonathan Demi the most. Like he says that Demi is the biggest influence on him. And after he said that, and I rewatched a bunch of his stuff, you go, oh yeah, especially in like, the close-ups where people are directly looking at the camera and, and centered in the frame. Yeah. Like yep. there, he loves all that shit. Also tonally speaking. Sure. You know, because, um, last how he kind of shifts gears so hard. I mean, something wild, the shift to when, when Ray Liotta shows up is one of the hardest shifts I've that ever seen third, yeah. in, in a narrative film ever. And I was like taken aback. I, it was like three years ago. I saw it for the first time. I rented it from, from Vulcan. Right. And I remember sitting down. I said, I should probably watch this. Like I like everything else Demi's done and holy shit. I mean, but it, it's so earned and it's so like, it, you can feel like the color of the film change, you know, it enters like this night world. Yeah. But it doesn't negate what came before. Um, and I, I, I would agree that he has, and that way he can play, because, like, Silence of the Lambs is also a very funny movie. Like, there's a lot of humor, I, I think, inside of it. There is, um, but that one does maintain a more consistent yes. tone. You, you, I mean, Something Wild is the best example of, like, how hard he can downshift. Yes. Because he... And you get it when you're watching it because he has to add some sort of, let's say, uh, consequences to Jeff Daniels. Um, mm. journey from yuppie to kind of weirdo free spirit as he as he's going along like Ray Liotta represents those kind of consequences but how hard that final third goes you're like oh shit man yep it's very um well and it's interesting that and I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves here but you know a couple other films I mean for instance the master um we were you had, I was watching the last part of it last night after we recorded and you were kind of you yeah. were hanging out till the end and you were saying, like, look at Joaquin's performance. You could see that, you know, he'd lost kind of the manic quality of the earlier parts of the film where he's obviously like this, this like this bottom feeder scoundrel. And you see him actually like having moments of, of real thought and real contemplation and realizing that that he probably wasn't capable of when you meet him as a, a sailor in the Pacific. Well, and it shows up in a lot of these films. Like there are these like hard shifts. I mean, I think in Inher- there will be blood is the is the hardest one where it goes into a straight horror movie for the last twenty or so minutes. That um, I think Inherent Vice too. Like it, it, oh, yeah. it, it, I was just rewatching that, and it plays. There's that moment where I, I think one actually this is one of my favorite moment out of any of the films I've seen by him. All of them um, is when he's talking to uh, Joanna Newsom, the chorus. Basically, she's the Greek chorus. Which is such that that chirpy sing song <sighs> voice of hers that's amazing. Fuck, she's so cool in this movie. And when shout he, out Travis Woods, yes, and she's sitting there. He's sitting there talking to her, and he's basically saying he he's he's kind of um, feeling bad about the condition of of Owen Wilson and his family. You know, well, and, it's and then, the moment where where the actual stakes of the film are applied to where he realizes that it's literally not about his journey to get back to Shasta. But if he can do this one good thing with his life and save this kid and bring this family back together, like it, that'll mean it'll, it'll not end his disillusionment because that's very much what the movie's about, but he can at least feel like he can live with himself again. It's, it's such a cool 
like scene where he is talking to um, the the father of Jocasta's father, who who he's he saved her in the in the past, and he asked for the um, basically asked to get Owen Wilson and his family out of this life. Right, um, that's his payment to get the heroin back, and he says, "How much would I have to ask for money wise from you for you to still for not to feel uh, to, to respect me?" And the guy's like, basically, I can never respect you. Once you start paying rent, people like you, I no longer have respect for you. It's definitely this class kind of thing going What's on. The idea of like betraying your ideals at that point. Yes, and and something again that I mean, we we noticed in talking about all these films of what are ideals in the face of like American hypocrisy. Like, how long can your ideals last? When you when you see behind the curtain, right? You know it happens well, in a lot of these films. Very much in the in the. I I talked about this, and I kind of want to get into this later, but I feel like you can segment his nine movies now into three separate groups of themes that he's explored, uh, that are very uh, meaningful to him. But with uh, there will be blood, the master, and inherent vice. That's his death of the American ideal kind of trilogy to where it's all about, you know, again, not to jump too far ahead, but like there will be blood is more or less a Dracula film about, uh, capitalism. Uh, the master is all about, uh, finding a purpose in a false prophet and then becoming disillusioned with the idea of having anything to follow in your life. And then inherent vice takes uh, this Thomas Pynchon novel and, and more or less acts as the period to this sentence and is all about very explicitly like, you know, they sold us on us being the hippies, this idea of peace and love and getting high and just living on the fringes. But like even the fringes are going to eventually be uh, encroached upon by the Lovecraftian tentacles of the system, you know, and it's, it's, all about Doc Sportello more or less realizing that his weed clouded haze of an an existence uh, is a lie. And if he, again, if he can do this one good thing, then he can at least feel like a person again. Yeah. I I like that. I love your, obviously I love Lovecraft. So any reference to that, there is a, I, you were talking earlier just Well, the now. Golden Fang is almost like a Lovecraft monster in that to where it just looms in the background. It's funny. It's almost like if Lovecraft was a comedian. It's it's Lovecraft, and it's also just pulp as hell. Pulp yeah. in general of like a really good detective story where it's like, beware the Golden Fang. And it's like, it's, I don't know why I didn't like Inherent Vice the first time around. Partly I just well, it wasn't in the mindset. This time I just, I got it. Like, and I like detective fiction and I got what he was playing with. You also like pussy eating specials. I do like that. Um, <laughs> well, that scene's fucking hilarious. Um, but you, I, I liked, you know, watching these thing about these, these later films. Um, I, there, like you said, there is a real like horror film pacing too. Um, and with inherent vice, like there is, there is it's that feels like his lightest film to me, honestly. Oh yeah, I would say actually it. Well, Boogie Nights for a huge chunk of it until you get again to that final kind of act or, or the downfall of the rise and fall narrative that he's telling. But yeah, Inherent Vice is almost like his Lebowski. It, you, I totally agree with that, and it's very it's very big sleep. Um, 
I, oh, he references Big Sleep all the time when talking about that movie. I mean, it's all over. Because what's great about the Big Sleep is it's another film, and, and Hawks is my boy. Also, I believe, also Lee Brackett wrote the screenplay for that. Yep. Um, and I think with Jules Furthman, but they, the mystery, I would, it's not incidental, but it's supposed to be so twisty turny that like they even asked Howard Hawks one time. They said, hey, so what's the solution to the mystery? Why does this equal this in Big Sleep? He goes, I don't fucking know. Yeah. It's supposed to be so, because the narrative, it's where it takes you emotionally. And I think this film is definitely that where if you don't get lost watching this movie about how everything connects, like you watched it wrong. Like you're supposed to get kind of at certain point, kind of give up like he has and just be, it puts you in his mindset, right? That, that haze It's supposed of like, to overwhelm you to a certain degree with the yes, puzzle pieces. Yes, too much. Um, but and, let's jump back to yeah, the sorry, beginning we get, we get, with Heart you know, 8. Well, I mean, like, because we, again, we, we were joking before we started recording that this could literally become a five-hour, like, three-part <laughs> episode because um, there is so much to talk about. Uh, you've gone on this journey of, of, of re-watching and maybe even re-evaluating some of these films. And I just, frankly, like this guy is yeah, like one of the dudes for me. Like from an early age, uh, I remember renting uh, Boogie Nights. It was actually when I played basketball in high school. I played AAU basketball. And I had a bunch of dudes coming over uh, to sleep over because we were all traveling together uh, for a tournament the next day. And we went down, we rented some movies, and we, Boogie Nights was one of them from the West Coast video at the bottom of the hill. And my aunt, I think she was, yeah, she was recovering from knee surgery at the time because she was a, a big skier. And she had hurt her knee, and she was on all kinds of fucking pain pills. And my parents had these two lazy boys in the living room. And that she more or less had like a drink or two, took her pain pills, and fall asleep, like fell asleep. Well, I started boogie nights at like we had watched whatever i think actiony type things that we had rented and then everybody was more or less ready to go to bed and i was like well i've heard this fucking boogie nights movie is really good i read about it in the paper so like i want to check it out so i stayed up and watched all two and a half hours of boogie nights and until like 1 30 or 2 o'clock in the morning and everybody else fell asleep and my and my aunt Mary Kay, God bless her, is in one of these lazy boys, just passed out for the whole fucking movie. Misses the entire thing, and I'm enthralled with this thing. Wakes up literally during the last scene. During the, I'm the bright shining star, I'm the bright shining star. Like, wakes up and half, like, cocked, looks at the screen and goes... I ain't never seen one that big before. And then goes right back to sleep. <laughs> like, that's the memory I have most with Boogie Nights. But, like, that movie hit me so hard that I went back and rented uh, Hard Eight, which I think we should talk about now because um, we both revisited it for this podcast and kind of had the same reaction of, like, this is really solid and you can see all of the tourist fingerprints already kind of all over this film. Like his, his idiosyncratic kind of voice is right there. He's already working with the actors that will at least dominate the first part of his career with John C. Riley and Philip Baker Hall. But like, it's still, it's nascent. Like it's developing. So like, how did you feel about Hardy? Yeah. It, um, it was really cool to go back to because I think the last time I saw it was right, very similar right after I saw 
Boogie Nights, and Magnolia. I was in high school, and I was like, oh, what else has this guy done? And I went back, and I rented VHS. For Did you rent the tape that had the cover that was like... It's red and black. black. and red, yeah. Yeah, it's fucking really cool. It's Yeah, it's got... Um, it looked great, and like Phil, uh, Philip Baker Hall has the gun on it. It's a, it's a, yeah, because it has that and it has like clubs, diamonds, hearts. It's like it's like a kind of whole you know casino theme, gambling theme, and like you said, I think I texted you. I said, "Wow, this is like, like I'm really enjoying this. It's it's short. It's, it's just real sturdy. It's it's sturdy. I think it also like looking at it, you're like, wow, it's just so cool how he did so much with so little. Because you count the amount of locations, there are quite few. Um, you, you could it you could see big where- while still being small. Like, all the casino stuff, which I find uh, really fascinating because it's Reno, yeah. and you don't see Reno on screen that often. And I believe when he, he wrote it, he was living in Reno at the time. Um, like, I think maybe his dad was living there or something. And like, he was going back and forth between Reno and, uh, the San Fernando Valley, uh, when he wrote it, but that's, he more or less got, uh, some producer money from Reicher, uh, entertainment who he would then go on to hate, uh, because they took the movie away from him and recut it behind his back, but got the money you know, wrote the movie or maybe had the script before. I don't know how the chronology of the production goes, but made this for not much money at all, but it feels like he spent some uh, cash on it at least. And maybe some of that is the fact that like, dude, like not only Philip Baker Hall, but John C. Riley and baby John C. Riley, but he has fucking Gwyneth Paltrow and Samuel Samuel L. L. Jackson in it too. Yeah. It's really, um, it's definitely one of his simpler films. I mean, the conceits, the narrative conceit and the thematic conceit is like very clear. Um, I think you get to later in his career, you get to master and it's really complicated. I think with like themes you could take from the film, it's very interwoven with a lot going on. You can see what he's going for with, I think oh, yeah. very clearly with what like we talked about, like setting up, um, surrogate fathers and, and, and fathers in general. Um, you have um, Sydney uh, Philip Baker Hall playing, who at first you think is just this. He's Winston Wolf. It's a better Winston Wolf movie than Winston Wolf in Pulp Fiction, in my opinion. Well, he's a, yeah, he's this aging, definitely a person you can tell has been has seen some shit. Um, you don't know quite know his motivations as it replies to um, to John C. Riley and Gwyneth Paltrow and. There's moments where the film kind of teases you. I think it's a great moment that really is very PTA is when he takes her back, when Philip, Philip Baker Hall takes her back to their apartment, to their to their suites, and you're like, oh, this is when we find out who Sydney really is. He's going to fuck her. He's a dirtbag like everybody else. And it's almost because... But he's not. But he's not. And he actually ends up being... He is, but he's not. It, the, that, the reveal comes later. It's, that's what's so cool is I think that he's already doing some really interesting... Just even from a screenplay perspective. Like, forget the filmmaking. Like, Well, he considers himself a writer before a director. Like, he he thinks writing is the, the biggest part of making a movie. Well, And you know, it's funny. Out of all the films I've seen lately and just... Filmmakers, like we've been obviously with this podcast exploring directors in kind of a chronological order, or just or just diving deep, which has been super fun, right? He's one of the more novelistic directors that I've come across. Oh, sure. And I think that also kind of helped this 
viewing of, of his, of his work. Cause I saw, um, licorice pizza last week when it was in theaters. And so I started, I loved it. It was fantastic. And I started there and then I went back to heart eight and, and worked my way up and novels don't always have to have the firm three act structure. Um, they don't often of a film. They can feel episodic. Um, they can Labyrinth have, even. Uh, yes. Um, they can also have moments of, of grace, but also of crazy coincidence, which come up a lot, um, in his films, especially in Magnolia. It's basically what the whole movie's about. Very much. I mean, this religious, you know, when, when the divine kind of touches us, uh, he doesn't, I, well, we'll get to it when we get there. He doesn't consider it a religious movie at all, though. It's funny. I think that's a conversation to have because, again, we talked about this yesterday, is like when a person, what they're purposely doing as a filmmaker and what comes through. Sure. You know, it's just inherent in the film. Um, but I started looking at these as almost like no- novels versus like films in the way they're structured because oh, yeah. I think I've off, often, 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 had issues with his films because they're so strangely structured. Um, and a lot of times I love a good firm three act structure following the kind of quote unquote Hollywood rules that, you know, that's done well. And he, he doesn't throw that out the window, but he's very playful with it. Um, and there are moments of great coincidence where, you know, literally cars is crashing into the middle of your movie and changing your story. Yeah. You know, um, these crazy turns of up these act turns, these, these midpoints that are super strange tonal shifts. But I think if you consider it more of that novelistic mentality, it, it was easier for me in that way. Does that make sense? It does. Also, I think what goes along with his novelistic tendencies is his love of character actors. Like the, yeah. he's not casting people who are pretty. You know what I'm saying? Like he's casting people that when you read a dime store novel or if you read a big sprawling uh, kind of, let's say, big American novel, like you don't imagine like movie stars in it. You imagine these lumpy down on their luck guys and gals just like you and me. And that's where his uh, affinity for Philip Baker Hall came from because he more or less wrote it for him because Philip Baker Hall, like he met while they were making like a short, uh, PBS documentary together, or maybe it was like an educational film and he was like a PA on it. And he gave, uh, Philip Baker Hall the script for his uh, first short, which is cigarettes and coffee. And then they even shot, I believe scenes of Sydney early on, uh, with, Philip Baker Hall in it, like to basically like see how the movie looked, but like Sydney was made to make like even Philip Baker Hall says like Paul Thomas Anderson came to me and was like, I'm going to make you a star. And he was like, okay, kid, whatever, you know, but he's obviously like loves this dude because then he'll put him in uh boogie nights as uh Floyd Gondoli, you know, a, a character that's referenced at least in name, uh, in Sydney so that Boogie Nights doesn't become like an extended universe thing, but it's obviously just uh, a name that he was in love with and then put Philip Baker Hall in one of the funniest uh, roles in Boogie Nights, which talk to me about Boogie Nights. Like how, how did you feel revisiting this one? Did you have the same thing of feeling like this is a young man's movie the same way that you had with Magnolia? Less of that. Okay. Less of that for sure. I think that the 
more of the, the limited narrative of this is in the end about Dirk, you know, like sure. you have it, you have a protagonist, you have a, uh, this is the most conventionally structured to yes. your point of, of probably all of his movies. I'd say well, it's structured like a good biopic. Yeah. It's a rise and fall story, <laughs> you know, like a, a, well, cause it's, you know, obviously we talked about this yesterday, but you know, based on, um, John Holmes, but I also felt like, you know, t- people like Tom Byron, uh, from that era kind of entering being the young hot stud um, for a while and playing the kid, it. I really enjoyed my my viewing this time. I think my problem with with Boogie Nights is not a problem again of quality. I find this film so fucking depressing. I, I and I, I know that's, that's just it's a thing, but that's a testament to his his filmmaking is how much it affects me. And part of it is. I know where the film's going. I've seen it before, but I think even if I hadn't seen it before, like he's laying the groundwork. You're watching it. Okay, this is definitely a train going toward the edge of a cliff. You know, you you get the sense. Well, especially if you know the real life figures that like yeah. inspired it, because I mean, Dirk Diggler is John Holmes, more or less, who went down or a, Jamie Gillis, and yeah, who went into the most darkest places you can imagine, including uh, the Wonderland, like drug deal murders and everything, which. The Alfred Molina scene kind of feels based on, but he says isn't at all. Yeah, it's... I think this is a very... You mentioned earlier the whole thing with, like, uh, Burt Reynolds being annoyed by him, working with him, or definitely... He was all hyped up himself about, you know, very much the movie Brat saying, oh, it's going to be, like, touch of evil, and we're going to pull this in. And, you know, Burt's response to him was... I've seen all those films. It's just another fucking movie. Like he, he was not, he was unimpressed by the kind of film. Geek. I'm just doing this as a job kid. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I mentioned this, we talked about this when we were doing our, our Burton Hal episode, but you know, Bert's a guy who worked with journeyman directors, worked on TV, worked with people who were honestly, also manly men, you know, like making films Well, an Italian exploitation dudes like Sergio Corbucci and stuff. Like he yeah. was in, a, and then even Robert Aldrich, you know, like who was very much like you're describing a manly man. Like he, in his uh, autobiography, talks a lot about like certain projects. And he, he goes, you know, I always wondered what like someone like Aldrich could have done with this, you know? Yeah. And it's that that that, that Aldrich Samuel Fuller kind of school of film or even Peck and Paw kind of like brash American filmmaking you know, watching it, it's, it really, it moves really well as a, as a narrative. I mean, it, it just is it propulsive. Like a lot of his films, like the scenes bleed from one into the other, which Sydney isn't. That's the one it's thing that not. I will say is like Sydney's somewhat languid. It's nice that it's only like a hundred minutes or whatever it is, but like it's choppy. It, it, it does not move in the same way that his other movies do, which are like Boogie Nights is like a straight up bullet. It, it moves, and it's so, like, while it is Dirk's story, it is also, he's he could see him leaning towards the mosaic filmmaking because you have a lot of characters with their own motivations, but also trauma. You have Julianne Moore trying to connect with her son, um, her son, I believe, right? Hmm? Her son, or he's trying to talk to her son on the phone. Oh, that she lost? Yeah. Yeah, to John Doe, and he... You have these moments like that. You have obviously also another pitiful role by um, like William H. Macy's story of constantly his wife, the the porn star. Um, well, he, he having tells sex a, a funny story about William H. Macy's character, too, of like 
how when he cut an early version of the movie together and like was screening it, like they actually sold, like had an audience come in and there was a bunch of like bro type frat dudes and they were like cheering when during the whole transition, like the, 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 the New Year's Eve sequence that goes into the eighties. Um, and they were cheering when he, because like you were saying, like he has a point star wife. Um, she's always fucking other dudes. He's just kind of, him. <laughs> yeah, just kind of a cuck boy the entire time and finally has enough. But they were cheering when he, during that party, goes out to the car, gets the gun, comes back in, and then shoots her. They were like, yeah, and he's ta- telling this story just absolutely mortified, like, I fucked up. Like, if they're cheering this par- part, like, they totally don't get it, and it's my fault. And then he said, and then the, the, the shot in one of his trademark kind of tracking shots in that movie, he comes back, puts the gun in his mouth, and blows his head off, and he goes, and then the whole theater just shut the fuck up. And he goes, "Oh, never mind, I did my job." <laughs> I love it, and it's a, it's a, it's a fucked up scene. Um, it's, it's still like a fucking anvil on your head when you see it again. Well, because it is like that is the scene where the party stops. It feels because literally, it is. I mean, like literally, it, but it's that that sense of. Wow, the seventies were great. We're we're making money hand over fist. We're the kings and queens of the world. Nothing can stop us. Video is not going to affect us, even though they say it's going to. We're fine. Then video comes in, and you have to change. You know, um, and after that point, it just really starts to go downhill. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Because he not only transitions into all of the problems that would plague a lot of these porn stars that the, the this movie is based on like with the Coke and the meth. Um, but can't, then he can't get hard anymore. I mean, can't get hard anymore, but also just videotape yep. all of a sudden emerges. It's, it's Phil Baker hall as uh, Floyd Gondoli uh, comes in to pitch, uh, you know, Burt Reynolds, uh, Jack Horner, the great porno movie director who like that is, I think one of the cool things about this is that Horner, does represent a certain type of director that did exist during that time period of the guy who would like go into porn and be like, this is my outlet. Like they won't let me make movies on any other level, but like I basically found my creative outlet to tell stories and I'm going to make, it's my dream in my life is that once they, they shoot that joy juice all over themselves, they got to sit there in it because they're so captivated by the story. Like that was a real dude who like existed out there, a real group of guys, you know, and would in some cases even transition into like act legitimate straight uh, Mm. filmmaking with like a, a lot of times exploitation stuff. But like he meets with Gondoli because videotape, is the next thing that comes in is supposed to revolutionize the porn world because you have, it's a lot like how nowadays you have digital that takes over shooting on celluloid is that it's like, Oh, we have this very cheap technology that we could bring in. You basically just change tapes instead of paying for film, paying for lighting, paying for all this stuff. And you just shoot and shoot and shoot and people fuck. And there's no story and who gives a fuck, but you sell a million tapes, you know, and we all get rich. And that's, was a problem that pervaded the porn industry at the end of the 70s, at the end of the golden age, which is what uh, Anderson was kind of chronicling with movies like the opening of Misty Beethoven and Deep Throat and stuff like that. But like, then to your point, he goes, this is where the movie get goes from being an Altman, Nashville type found family thing that builds on the themes that were in Sydney with like 
a guy coming in, finding more or less his uh, surrogate uh, mother, father, son, sister, and daughter in, in John C. Riley and Gwyneth Paltrow. And like, you know, with this, with Mark Wahlberg and Dirk Diggler, like he finds his whole family, like Horner's the dad, Amber Waves, which is Julianne Moore, uh, Moore's character is the mom. Roller Girl is the outrageous, you know, unruly sister. Uh, John C. Riley, again, being the funniest motherfucker who's ever like existed, is is the great uh, bigger brother to him. But then it stops being about that, and it becomes about like what happens when the nuclear family dissolves, and that becomes again a recurring theme in this and Magnolia's that and again I think it's something that he was kind of working out on his own with his own uh, personal issues that were going on off screen but it's about like it dissolves now and these guys go on their paths and you realize without one another they're like fucked and lost in a sea of humanity yeah it's it's weird because it makes the ending sad but also oddly hopeful um, because they are back together, um, doing what they do best, but it is, but it also has the view of, but for how long, you know, there, there, there's a, a melancholy, I think to it. There is, I mean, and you can't help but have melancholy when you're listening to the beach boys. God only knows over your last scene. Yeah. But I agree with you. I think the, the one place where I take issue with that reading is the fact that like, the majority of them have kicked drugs, you know, like they're mm. not like, or at least it's implied that they have, they don't explicitly say it, but you, you imagine that roller girl is done doing Coke. Diggler's definitely, you know, is definitely off of Coke. Now, uh, Jack has reasserted a more, uh, tighter grip on these people to really kind of bring them together. And even Amber waves, you know, after losing her child in a custody battle, uh, realizes that these are the only children that she has and, and more or less like straightens herself up so that her family stays together. So there is a set a, a sadness or a melancholy, like you say to it. But to me, it's almost like in your real life family, like you're always going to have people who fuck up and, and, and lose their way. But like the idea of family is that you keep coming back to it for better or worse, you know? Absolutely. But let's get to Magnolia next. The, the, centerpiece of our episode and kind of the centerpiece more or less of his filmography because after this movie his his films take kind of a hard turn yeah there's a transition film in between this and there will be blood but like this is the last of like let's say the coke kid san fernando valley films yeah and like we were saying you know it's it's the most of these three. It's um, mega. It's it's very. And I, you and know, I both joked when I turned it on. I'm like, Jesus Christ, three hours! Like you had the same experience. Like I didn't realize it was three hours are almost ten minutes. Yeah, it's like it's yeah, well over. I mean, like a significantly over three hours. It's a chunky movie. Um, again, it's a two taper. And to your point with the novelistic part, like it even has that entire prologue with like Ricky J narrating. And going through the different coincidental uh, kind of apocryphal narratives or legends, let's say, uh, throughout history and how they set up like the characters' predicaments that we're about to witness and how they all literally crash into each other at one point or another. Well, it's funny is watching this movie, I thought, I was like, Paul Haggis, you motherfucker, 
you made Crash. Like Crash is like oh yeah, I, I knew Crash was ripping That's out a lot the of target movies, version of this movie. But like yeah, like I didn't realize the Archer farmed Magnolia. How much it was like that he had completely ripped it off, but also tried to have the heavy theme of race in America, like just like yeah, blasted on the front, like and to win an Oscar. Um, but yeah, this is I mean. This is an interesting one. I think that, again, there are stories that you can kind of pick out of the movie and you can like make your choice. Of, oh, I like that character. I think like for me, probably the strongest story, which makes sense because it is the most personal, is the Tom Cruise and Jason Robards. Um, I find... Speaking of mega performances. Well, and Cruise is fucking amazing in this and apparently movie. Apparently, I found an interview where he said he wrote it for Cruise. Well, it makes sense because... Because Cruz loved Boogie Nights and came to him and was like, "We, I want to work together. And PTA was like, what? Really? Cool. And then more or less, like the way he described it is that he was like, you know, he called me after Boogie Nights, said we really want to work together, uh, contacted my agent, was like, oh, do you want to meet Tom Cruise's people? And he's like, of course I want to fucking meet Tom Cruise and his people. Like he's the one of the biggest movie stars in the world. They met and PTA was like, well, I have this idea for a movie. I'm going to work on it and then I'll send it to you. And he goes, eight months later, I wrote it and I sent it to him. And Tom Cruise instantly was like, yeah, I'm in. Let's do it. That's crazy. I wonder too, I mean, what Cruise thought of the master, this obvious story about Scientology. Sure. Um, I, I, again, I, I will we'll get into yeah. that more when we get to the master. But like, I think the... Much like how the porno stuff in Boogie Nights is more or less like a jumping off point to explore the idea of family creativity and like more or less like a subcultural milieu, you know, like to me, Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard and the master are almost just like a springboard for him to explore uh, the beginnings of disillusionment in America, especially in like young men coming back from war, you know? Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, but that's that's a different conversation for sure. Um, but I think Cruz just really brings it and there's probably, there's a lot of really amazing parts in this for Cruz, but I think it's after he's done the interview, finished the interview with the woman who finally breaks through and says, I know who you are. I know like your father is, you know, why um, would you lie, Frank? And he just, and it, of course we were talking, you know, um, one of the best things about PT Anderson stylistically is those, those centered shots of a close-up that where it just lingers. And even if it's cuts away, you can feel when it cuts back, it's the same shot. You know what I mean? It's like you're in it and it's like, it's not cutting back to a different angle. It's like, no, this is the shot of him. And you see him, he's like, what's your question? You know? And, and he lets it out. And when he goes out on the stage, you see him like when he flips the, when he flips table. the table, it's this like fight because what a great character to write, to build, I mean, that, that very interesting, um, contradiction, um, in, in the character of Frank, where, uh, you cared for your mother when your father abandoned you, your father's the asshole, but you somehow turned all that rage against women. You know, you've, you've, you completely flipped everything on its head. It's easier to process that than to admit the trauma that you went through and to say women are useless. Women should be fucked. 
It's all they, about uh, compartmentalizing yes. like his angst. Uh, yeah, compartmentalizing and also like projecting. Weaponizing. And, yeah, yeah, and weaponizing and projecting. And he he does that. And you see in the, in, in the scene where he's like, this is such bullshit. He flips the table is Frank basically saying, this is all fucking bullshit. You yeah. Know? And, and it's funny because that becomes a theme and a, and a, and an element you see in a lot of these films where, well, he inverts that scene completely. And there will be blood with the big oil strike scene where HW, uh, Daniel Plainview's uh, son gets injured and loses his hearing is there's that great moment. He loses his hearing. They rescue him. They run him out to the mess hall and then he keeps going and he's covered in oil. And there's that great, Final long shot where he and Syrian Hines are just standing in the yep. glow of that that Derek that's on fire the entire time, and he's staring up at it, and all you can see is Daniel Day Lewis's eyes as his face is just covered in oil, and they're in they're marveling over the fact that like they're going to be fucking rich, they're going to be multimillionaires in a time where like a thousand dollars could sustain you for like years, you know, and there's that moment. Where Syrian Hines goes, how is he? <laughs> is HW okay? He goes, no, he's not. And it just holds for a minute, and you see Syrian Hines like processing it, and he eventually walks away to go actually care for the kid. But Plainview's so enraptured by the notion of money and power that he he like all of a sudden you watch his humanity vanish. So he takes that idea of like uh, Frank T.J. Mackey, where he's re like that humanity finally. Uh, kind of reinjects itself into him and makes him realize that everything is bullshit. Everything he's doing is basically more or less been a response to uh, trying to run away from his father and the, the the trauma that he caused him. Where like, and there will be blood. It's almost like all humanity fades away. Nothing matters but the power that he can achieve by what's in front of him. It's no, marvelous. No, and I, and I was gonna. I I love that that reading, and I I agree. And I think there's also two moments in there will be blood that mirror this and is the amazing scene where Dana Plainview is baptized. And we were talking about one of the blood Lord, give me the blood Lord where you see this is a moment where you need an actor like Daniel Day Lewis, a person who's a theater actor, who's a method actor who I don't always love method. I kind of roll my eyes sometimes or everyone's fucking method now, but Daniel Day Lewis and De Niro are like the, the, uh, patron saints of method acting right. along with Brando you know? where, where it actually works and you're yeah. like not just you being an asshole and sending dead rats to your class to your fucking castmates and suicide squad yeah you know like fuck you Jared Leto. yeah I mean seriously fuck that shit and but this is that you know you see him go through like five emotions you know or five there's like multiple beats built into the performance of and you can see the direction from PTA PTA of just like all right, this is the moment where you're like, hey, fuck you with your eyes. Like, you're going to bring up my kid. I abandoned my child. And you see him get caught up in it. Like, he is actually screaming out, I abandoned my child, admitting it. You see him, like, regain control and and then kind of start making fun of it again. Where he's like, give me sure. the blood, Lord, you know, being sarcastic. But I think this scene of Frank. Do you accept Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. You have Frank, you know, in Magnolia, you know, tossing that table. This is all bullshit. You have at the end of there will be the final scene of him making Eli admit that it's all bullshit, breaking through um, moments of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in the master where the bullshit breaks through, where you do realize he's making this up as he goes, it goes along and like mm -hmm. the facade, the magic kind of drops 
and you see behind the curtain. Yeah, because there's that great moment in the master after they released the second book. And oh. it was part that we watched together oh my uh, God. after we recorded our Dern. episode yesterday where Laura Dern sits down with him and he's like, oh, I noticed some there's like some some verbiage change to the processing questions and instead of like can you recall it's can you imagine and she starts not even needling him she's really being nice because you can tell she's still her character is still very much into the the notion of processing and and the 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 cause yeah the cause and and what um hoffman's character has created here and he finally snaps and goes what do you want and and like the whole movie stops, and you're like, and you see Dern like even like recoil and be like, oh my god. And she's his money woman. Yeah, like she's the one basically. Well, she, she's the one that he holds up with in Philadelphia to basically yep. more or less hide again, which is kind of like the implied why the, why the setting keeps changes for that. But back to Magnolia. If yours is Frank T J Mackey, mine is 100 percent uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman mm. and Phil the nurse and like his relationship with Jason Robards and his quest to get. So I guess it's almost like a two hander, right? Is that you have Frank itself, but then you have this nurse's story to when he has to bring the two together so that, uh, you, you, we have this kind of catharsis at the end where Tom Cruise cries over, uh, Jason Robards dying body. Um, but to me, Hoffman is like, we had a debate last night while we were watching the master together. And I asked you, is this Philip Seymour Hoffman's best performance? And like, it might be his best performance still, but I think because it's the most complete, it's the one where you get the most range, you get the most showiest. He's the lead. (laughs) uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Yeah. He's the big, well, I'd say Joaquin's the lead. But like Philip Seymour yeah. Hoffman is the inciting, like he's the force that he's drives the, title the, movie. the movie. Yeah, 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 exactly. But like you get everything from him. He gets to be funny. He gets to have the big uh, showcase scene with Joaquin, where he, you know, they have the processing scene where he he unlocks these memories in him. He gets to sing and dance at parties. He gets to explode at Laura Dern. He gets to have that big emotional climax where he sings "Slow Boat to China" uh, to uh, Freddie Quell. But so like, yeah, it's probably the most complete uh, Hoffman performance, but Phil Parma is my favorite. Like I have trouble thinking about his character sometimes without like getting a lump in my throat because I feel like he's so like Julianne Moore is the beating heart of Boogie Nights. Phil Parma Mm. is the, the, the humanity that grounds you in Magnolia because every time he's on screen, you feel this this sense of goodness uh, that's pervading it that's kind of lacking from the rest of the movies. I think William uh, H. Macy's uh, Quiz Smith or Quiz Kid Donnie Smith has a bit of this as he get dr- gets drunk, but even his is a little more sad than Parma's. Yeah. But like Phil... John C. Riley has a sweetness, but there's also a real fucked upness to it all. Yeah, of, it's he, a loneliness. He's, 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 a, he's a fuck up too. Yeah. Like he's not respect on the force, you know... And he's doing a funny thing, too, where he does the whole, like, cops monologue and all that stuff, too, to where, like, uh, yeah, again, is he the heart? Maybe. Like, he he and Phil Parma would be the two that I would argue would, would possibly be, like, the light that's in the darkness that really pervades Magnolia. But, like, man, there's that moment where he's on the phone 
uh, trying to get a hold of Frank uh, Mackey so that the, he can get them together. And he's going, you know, this is the part of the movie where you help me. And I know that it sounds cliche, but I just need, I need you to understand that this, is, this isn't a joke. This isn't a ruse. Like, I just, I need you to help me here. And man, every time that scene comes, like, I'm just, I'm an emotional wreck because, both because I think it's a great film scene and it very much is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson flexing as a writer and like really showcasing like this is the, the work of an ambitious film student who is making a, a movie movie. They call you know? it, um, they call it in screenwriting, hanging a lantern. Right. It's where exactly. you, you kind of wink at the audience. Like this is a moment. Like I'm, this is a moment. It's, it's self-reflexive to yeah. like, talking about the movie. You're signaling to the audience that you know, you're making a fucking movie, <laughs> but this is, this is Pay the attention post. Yeah. Right now. But like, I also think it's the moment, too, that signals this huge evolution in, in PTA because one of the things that I love about him is how ambitious he is in the fact that, like, you know, Sydney is more or less like a weird stealth sequel to Midnight Run because Phil Baker Hall played a character named Sydney who's more or less like a mafia fixer that he was like, what if we did, like, the melancholy like sequel to that character's existence that doesn't have De Niro or Charles Grodin in it. And then Boogie Nights is like the driven fuck you movie because Reicher Entertainment uh, took Hard away from him, re-edited it. And the only reason he got to do his own cut is because it was accepted into Cannes and Cannes requested a director's cut. So he got to reclaim his film and show his version of it. So Boogie Nights was like the ultimate, like, go fuck yourself. Because he even talks about how, like, in the in the production of that movie, you know, Michael DeLuca at New Line was a huge champion of it. And, like, when he first met with Michael DeLuca, he even admits, again, the whole idea of, like, in hindsight, I would have probably told myself to settle the fuck down a bit, is that he was like, you know, when DeLuca came to me, he was like, you know what? Here's what it's going to be. It's going to be three hours long. It's going to be rated fucking NC-17. It's going to, and it's going to be set in the porn industry, and it's going to be an epic. And DeLuca was like, dude, calm the fuck down. Like, I really want to make this movie. <laughs> Don't talk me out of this. And like originally DeLuca agreed to it. He was like, sure, you can make an NC 17 movie. He's like, well, I'll go to the suits and the, the, the money dudes here that we're going to get it from. And then we'll kind of come back to that. And then he came to Anderson and was like, Hey, so here's the thing. You can have final cut. Like you want, you can make a three hour epic. You can do all this stuff. Can we make it R rated? Because in order for us to do that and you to get all your other stipulations, you got to give us something, you know? And that was the thing where Anderson finally was like, and then I realized this dude was real. He was like, oh, you're going to let me make my movie. I just need to stop being a fucking self-righteous dickhead over it. Um, but then in Magnolia with all the Phil Parma stuff is that this feels like the culmination of PTA's bravado. Like he always has something to prove, mm -hmm. you know, and that's when he works best in that it's him inserting this character in the middle of it that signals to you as an audience member, you are watching a big capital M movie movie. You've bought the ticket. You're taking the ride. And this is guy is your, your guide to this more or less. And I just fall in love with it every time I revisit the film. Hell Yeah. So what do you think of the frogs? 
I think it's pretty, what, what do I make of the frogs? Or what do I think of the frogs? Yeah, because, I mean, the frogs are kind of a divisive thing, even with fans of the movie. Like, it, it took me, I go back and forth on it to where part of me thinks, like, oh, it's this really crazy, audacious way to end your movie. And then uh, on another viewing, part of me will be like, you're just an asshole. I think I'm probably in the camp of liking it okay. more, um, especially on this viewing. Again, back to the kind of novelistic approach of these crazy moments of magical realism that you can shoot in a movie that is not really magical until that moment. Um, what I like about it and what it does narratively is it forces characters out of their their spirals. Like I feel like every character in this film is stuck in mm-hmm. some way. Um, and having trouble either changing or or transitioning to something or, to, or guess, you know, getting out of a moment they're stuck in. And I think the frogs just do that. It, it forces people together and it also um, is so strange that it, it disrupts all the bullshit. You know, even Tom Cruise, as a character is very stuck, is looking up like, what the hell is happening? I think, you know, a moment of... Um, of, you know, John C. Riley uh, saving William H. Macy. You know, it's this it's this moment of grace there, too. Of, And I think that is what allows John C. Riley to go see the woman at the end. Like, it's like that sure. moment of, it's like he reclaims his, like, his heroism, maybe. Um, or, or, or his moment. Well, it's, he, why the, it's why the gun also falls symbolically from the sky, too. And it, Absolutely. It, it, it kind of puts things right. Um, but I like it. I think it works for me. Okay. I liked reading Anderson's response to it, or at least his explanation for it, because like everybody kind of like what we were talking about is that, you know, it's a biblical thing. They talk yeah. about a plague of frogs in the Bible and blah, 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 blah. But like he didn't intend it that way. There are two inspirations for it. He, he talks about is that, he had a friend that was more or less like when things are really going bad for you, it's raining frogs. Like it's just mm. nothing will, you can't catch a break and which is where Everybody all of his is. characters <laughs> are by the, that point in the movie when it does rain frogs is that, you know, everybody's at their lowest point. Life has crashed down on them and they don't know where they're going to go. But he also talked about how part of it was inspired by a story that Philip Baker Hall told him when it actually rained frogs on him. As a when he was stationed, I believe in Sweden during I think World War II, um, he was driving through uh, the mountains with a, a a truck convoy, and it just began raining frogs around them. And it was a thing that he actually experienced in real life, and that it was just a, a strange visual that always stuck in PTA's brain, which I thought was kind of cool. And again, with uh, Philip Baker Hall just being this guy's like weird muse, you know, for at least the first three movies. Yeah. I think there's a, what comes after the scene and I I love, I think it's one of the best endings of his films um, of just lingering on Claudia's face again. Uh, (laughs) um, Oh, with that, that Amy man, save me song. Well, Amy man is top five favorite. I didn't even mention that singer. I've seen her live. She's fucking amazing. Um, I love, 
I love the score a lot, but I love all the songs that she either covered or wrote for this. Um, well, and also like Claudia's whole character, not whole character, but like bits of it were inspired by like man's uh, lyrics because like even the, the uh, line that she delivers to John C. Riley when they have dinner together, uh, now that you've met me, would you object to never seeing me again is an Amy Mann mm. lyric. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the ending shot where she looks at the camera and smiles is like still a chill inducing like I'm getting chills right now. Yeah, Seriously. Best best ending of all time contender. Well, it's so what I when I like it when I think PTA is at his like greatest um is moments like this where they can there can be a lot of darkness and pretension even as the films get later on where a moment of like true human goodness like shines through. And because the rest of the film is not showing you that often, it's not, it's the furthest from cheesy you can be, but to have a moment like that where beyond love, just goodness kind of shines through and, and him just telling her, I love, and I love cause the music is, is crescendoing and you can barely hear what he's saying. Like it's, it's actually, it's almost, it's mixed underneath the music. And you're just watching her face. And, and another you're watching one of the great long takes and of, just, of PTA, just watching an actor react to another re- actor. And you can't even see, you can't even see the face of John C. Riley, but he has this like checkered he's shirt on. He's basically out of frame. He's, he's, he comes and you see, you see his shoulder. Mm-hmm. It's basically almost on over the shoulder, but he's got, it's like this out of focus, like, like flannel shirt and you can just see, you can imagine him talking and he's so genuinely sweet to her and just saying, he's like, you tell me anything you have problems with and I'll take care of it. It's just this really brutally honest, beautiful thing. And she's, you know, cause she's shaking and, and then starts to just kind of calm down. And then like you said, that smile. Um, and that's a, that's a connective thing. I think in a lot of his films is his view of, of what romance is. Um, and, might be a good way to segue to Punch Drunk Love, if that's okay, because... Um, yeah, because, I mean, I think that's a key kind of text in a, another group of threes uh, in his filmography, is that the love trilogy that I have, which to me is is Punch Drunk Love, um, Phantom Thread, and now Licorice Pizza. So, rewatching Punch Drunk Love, if I were rating these films, is my least favorite PTA film. Um, mine's still hard eight, but it would be, it it would probably be hard eight and then, uh, punch drunk love towards the bottom. It's, I think, I think that actually might be the culprit for when I kind of soured on him for a while. Oh, wow. Really? Um, I think it might, cause I think I was in college as a freshman. Me too. And I saw it. I was like, what the fuck is this? I hated it the first time I saw it. I absolutely hated it. And it's funny cause like I'm a, Big Adam Sandler fan. Like, I've seen Billy Madison 200 times with my brother. I love Happy Gilmore. I love Wedding Singer. I love even his, like, more dramatic stuff, like Spanglish. You know, I think he's he he can do it. Um, no, it's great in Spanglish. It just quick tangent. Not a good movie. No, it's not. But has one great, like, all-timer Albert Brooks scene where he, because, you know, Adam Sandler plays a chef in it. And he's making himself a sandwich. And it looks like the greatest fucking sandwich I've ever seen in my goddamn life. But he keeps getting interrupted the entire time while he's making this sandwich. And I remember even seeing it in the theater because it was during the time when I was working in a movie theater throughout college. 
is that I wanted to scream at the scene the entire time, like, just let me eat the fucking sandwich. <laughs> but like, it's one of those quintessential weird, like, uh, uh, it's not. I'm sorry. Not Albert Brooks. James L. Brooks right. moments that that pops up. Albert Brooks is in James L. Brooks's broadcast news, but like it's just one of those great Brooks sequences of like he found this great structure within a scene to tell this this one little instance in this guy's life. Anyway, um, but I, I I think I know where you're going with this. But continue. No, it, this is where I was just like. I, and everyone I saw it with, because it was also it played on campus at Denison, um, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, I fucking love that! That was amazing!" And I went to, and saw it by myself at the little theater in Carolina where I was going to college. And nobody would go with me. They all went and saw Eight Mile, I believe, the same weekend, <laughs> which I'd seen like the night before, and really like Eight Mile. Yeah, was pretty good. I love Curtis Hansen. Um, this one. I liked it more this time around. It's still bottom of the barrel for me, for him. And I think the reason is it's one of his more unpleasant films. I, I, I genuinely believe that because I, I know the subject matter on the surface. The sister's stuff is, is harsh. It is. But again, pulled from his real life. Again, I mean, a film about, you know, rejecting your real family and accepting a, a surrogate family or finding love to take you out of that. There's one moment in the movie that really works for me. And again, I think it's a well-made film. Is it the phone booth scene? Uh, no, it's not that, but that's, that's a great, favorite that's moment. a good scene. But when I, it lights up and the, and the John Bryan score just goes around him. Oh my God. Again, like the, the, uh, Melora Walters, uh, moment at the end of Magnolia, just a total chill inducing, like, Oh, cinema, like with an exclamation point moment. Well, and this is like, you know, this feels like the better version of me of La La Land, um, which I hate. Um, you hate La La Land? I hate La La Land. Oh, man. Um, Maybe that's a deal breakers in the future because okay. I really like that movie. Yeah, I despise it. Um, but two filmmakers who were kind of playing with that classic Hollywood, this one is less narratively doing that and more like, because he's talked about this is like my musical without, without singing. Yeah, it's, his, and, it's almost like his Jacques Demy movie. Very much. And and it's very saturated. There's a great shot where it... it um, it dollies down the uh, supermarket with like pop oh, yeah. art and it's like, you could see they actually digitally colored it and it's so vibrant oh, and then beautiful. it stops. It's like, so there's stuff in it that I really like. I think the reason I don't roll with it is it's so fucking stressful. Like there's a sequence in the middle. It's the sequence where he first meets um, Emily Watson where it's so goddamn chaotic. It's well directed, but it's like it, I was getting a fucking panic attack watching this scene where you have the fucking um, lifter in the back, push it over. He's getting a phone call from the woman who wants his money. It's just, it made me feel like just pure anxiety, but it becomes a beautiful moment where she walks outside to her car, turns around and then comes back in to ask him out because it, and then everything calms down for a second. It all and it has that great weird, like percussion score as she's going and it just keeps rising and rising and rising and kicks in as she turns back. But then it just settles, you know, yeah. because, and I realized I was like, okay, that was a well done thing because it puts you in the mindset of a person like me who struggles with anxiety yeah. and the world feels overwhelming. And the sense of she brings calm into his life. She brings calm into the film. And whenever she's on screen for the most part, everything chills out. Like it really, like she is like this, like holding down presence. We've talked about other characters in movies where she centers it all. She's true good humanity. Um, so I like those elements, but as a whole, I still am just like, 
And I love, it's actually one of my favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman roles too. Like just seeing him scream a lot is great. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut, 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 shut up. And, and I mean, one of the greatest turns too of, and he's like, get out of here, you fucking pervert. <laughs> no. He's like, all right, well, nope, that'll be it. You know, and then talk about mattress kings. Oh, and it was, I was dying laughing. And, and that was another, again, there's elements in his films that are, co- are consistent. And there's definitely these, the hustler mentality to a lot of his, his yeah. heroes and his villains. Well, and this one you know, uh, builds on the, the uh, visual uh, gag that he pulls in Hard Eight, where one of the, the best moments in Hard Eight is when he's showing you the mechanics of the con yes. where Philip Baker yes. Hall uh, walks John C. Riley through like, how do you get a free room like room in Reno? How do you basically trick these guys by doing this very simple procedure, legal thing, legal thing over and over and over again, that will both make you money and also get like your entire stay comped with them because they think you're a high roller at that point. Like he does the same thing here with the healthy choice coupons because it's Barry Egan uh, even calls and is like, Hey, so like, have you guys thought you done the about math? this? And if I did this this way, then I could basically fly for free for the rest of my life for n- more or less no money. And they're like, no, we haven't. And he just cashes in and takes advantage of it because it's like a loophole in the system. It's a, it's a weird recurring bit that PTA brings back here. Well, there's, it's, it's the, there's the gambling hustle aspect to a lot of these films and characters, but there's also the idea of what it means to own your own store or your own business because you see in The Master where sure. they get out of, of the army and there's the, the – doctor slash like intake say guy saying, you know, you can have whatever you want. This is America. You could own a hardware store, you could own, you know, own a, um, a fill station, raise a fleet of chickens, right? Yeah. Raise a, yeah. You know, the American dream, right. At that point, which was, was possible. And you have, which you, they're selling to a bunch of guys who basically lost their humanity in war. Well, they're all PTSD. Yeah. They're just all fucked they're up. All, shell shocked ad, like just, shells of human beings at this point. And it's so well shot because these guys are vacant as fuck. Yeah. You know, and then you have Buck in um, Boogie Nights wanting to own his own, uh, you know, um, stereo store. Stereo store. Um, You have uh, Gary in Licorice Pizza owning many different storefronts. Yeah, a waterbed. Well, basically using the same storefront to do a waterbed store and then an arcade. Yes, whatever's hot. And it definitely has... What's the hustler? That's what he loves it. For for all that. But I I find it's an interesting... Because Barry Egan, uh, Sandler's character, owns like decorative... They're like plungers. They're decorative plungers. Um, I forget. So they're, they're stupid flungers. Yeah, that's it. Or fungers. Fungers. He and Luis Guzman, the great fucking amazing Luis Guzman, who's one of uh, PTA's regulars at this point. He's what's great about Luis Guzman in all these movies is he doesn't insert himself too much. He or assert himself. He's there. Like he's rarely has a big impact on the plot. I in mean, these he films. is the ultimate Latin lover, though. He's well. He's so funny, but he's he's so like adds this like flavor to the the conversations and these long tracking shots of Boogie Nights. I think he's really fucking great in Magnolia as one of the competing adults um, on the quiz show. Um, he's so goddamn funny. Like the PTA zeroes in on his reactions to these smart kids the entire time. Well, he feels out of place in a lot of these movies. Yeah. Cause it's, you know, again, this like 
can be pretentious art house kind of stuff. And you have Luis Guzman who just has this look. Well, he's you know? the he's the first character we really see in Boogie Nights. He welcomes mm-hmm. us to the club. Absolutely. So, um, but here's here's my thing with with Punch Drunk Love. I I agree with you in that to me it's one of the great uh, transitional movies in a yeah. career career because it feels like PTA's made his three indie crime like like nineties milieu kind of movies here with. Uh, Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, and Magnolia. But here, it fe- like Punch Drunk Love is the first one that he makes where it it feels like a conscious. I want to do something different. Yeah. Like I've done this. Now I want to do this. But it doesn't quite feel focused like the other ones do, which I know is an, an odd, uh, let's say, word to use or descriptor to use uh, when you're coming off of Magnolia, which is not necessarily the most focused movie in the world that part of its charm is how sprawling and outlandish it all is. But like, this feels like the work of a guy trying to figure out where you go next. Yeah. What do you mm-hmm. do with your life? And as you pointed out to me before uh, we started recording is that this movie was made more or less after he broke up with Fiona Apple and started dating Maya Rudolph, who would be his uh, wife for the rest of his life and partner. And he has four kids with her now and they have a family, but like this feels like a young man in love movie. Like he, and and like you said, the John Bryan score um, where he's, because he had worked with him before, because uh, before it was mostly Michael Penn writing Mm -hmm. a a lot of the music. And then John Bryan, I believe co-wrote the music in Boogie Nights. And Heart Eight, I believe. Both of them. I think Penn is just... Uh, Heart Eight. I'd have to look it up. You could be right. Yeah. But either way, they've worked together before. Yeah. Michael Penn was his other kind of mu- musical uh, accomplice, let's say. But like, Brian is the, the big star of this film because to me, his score is is doing all the stuff that you're talking about to where it puts you in the head of Barry Egan. It shows you what it's like to be a scrambled early 20, maybe mid to, to 20 something approaching your thirties, like owning your own business, trying to figure out where your place is in the world. Yep. And like, but you're dealing with it. Like your head isn't quite right. It's not quite screwed on tight enough. There's some electrical impulses, maybe going left and right and, and, and firing uh, in the wrong directions. And then you meet Emily Watson and it's like, boom. That like the the light goes off, and to me, it almost feels inspired because I know, in wanting to work with Sandler, I believe, and this this could be print the legend shit, but he started writing for SNL to prepare for making a romantic comedy with Adam Sandler. Hmm. Um, I believe is how the story goes, and I think that's how he actually met uh, Maya Rudolph. Oh, interesting, is, is floating through those those comedy circles. And then they hit it off and the rest is history, more or less. But to me, Punch Drunk Love, yeah, it ranks towards the bottom because it feels not necessarily like a toss-off per se, but it's the least essential. It, 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 he's not as hungry. And he again, he works best when he's hungry and, and feels like he, he has something to prove, which would come, what, five years later? Five. With... There will be blood, which to me, we should just jump into with both feet because this is 
while not my number one favorite PTA movie, I think this is the indisputable like masterpiece. This movie is so fucking good. Um, it's hard to describe. Like I texted you something along the lines of like watching it to me is what it must have felt like to see the Godfather in, in 72, because it's just that much of like a towering, like this is America, like masterwork, you know? Yeah, I would agree. It feels also like one of the best adaptations of a book that Cormac McCarthy, McCarthy never wrote. Yeah. Like it's that, like the darkness of the human spirit. Which it comes from Upton Sinclair's, Sinclair's oil. oil. Yeah. And, you know, and McCarthy I love, and uh, and he's been adapted, but like this captures that spirit, I think, of... It makes you wonder what Paul Thomas Anderson's Blood Meridian would look like. Which I would love to see. Because yeah. um, Ridley was supposed to do that for years, and, right? And... Um, What's his name? Todd Field, too, Todd, I believe. Todd Field was like well along on yeah. his way to making it. And then Nick Which, Cave. Did you see the day that uh, it looks like Keanu's going to sign on to the Devil in the White City adaptation <gasps> for Hulu that Leonardo and, and Scorsese are producing? Todd Field's going to direct the first two episodes of it. Is Keanu playing H.H. Ke- H. Holmes? It sounds like get he, the fuck out of my apartment. Yeah. Oh my god. Like it was the big news story today. And then but buried in the deadline article that I read, it was like, and Todd Field's on to direct the first two. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? That's that little spice for us. Yeah. And oh my, my god. My dick got hard. That's so um, anyway, okay. back to PTA. I'm fucking pumped. Um watching this. A, I'd say next to the master, probably his prettiest movie. Um, I, I think that, well, it's, it, it with, feels like him and Robert Ellswit getting back on the same, like, like pure wavelength because you had Magnolia's gorgeous. Yeah. You know, well, they work together, you know, through, through those three, uh, punch drunk love is kind of like a one-off experiment. And then Ellswit is just back and like roaring and totally doing like a Roger Deakins thing in the same year that Deakins shot both. No Country. Uh, no Country and Assassination of Jesse James, two of the most gorgeous American movies ever made. And and it's, it's funny that those three films have so much in common beyond their look. I mean, obviously they're all period pieces. And the fact that they all came out in the same year. Same year, and it's about like the, the dark heart of America. I mean, it's in all of them. <laughs> I mean, especially I think No Country, and a, a McCarthy adaptation. Sure. You know, um, I think that kind of vibe was hot that year. Um, well, and the counselor, uh, to bring up Ridley again, would, which is a direct uh, Cormac McCarthy script, feels in the same kind of, uh, let's say, lineage as these movies. Yes. Is that it's all about how, again, Lovecraft, like you want to talk about a movie that's Lovecraftian without being actually love, like written or based on like a Lovecraft horror story. The counselor is all about what if the Lovecraftian tentacles of fucking the drug trade just seeped up into all of our lives. Yeah, you can't... It's like a, a much more fucked up version of Sicario, of yeah. like you can't escape. Which is saying something, because Sicario itself is pretty fucked up. Anyway, Sorry. back to The World Be Blood. Um, to me, it's crazy, because 1999 and 2007 are, for my money, the best movie years since I've been alive. Like, and the most formative, because to me, watching Magnolia in 99, one of my big connections to it is that 
my favorite personal director of all time is Brian De Palma. Right. And he tells a story about watching Vertigo yeah. for the first time and how uh, it was the moment when the creative storytelling part of his brain married with the mechanical scientific part of his brain of like, how do you do this? Like, how do you set the camera up? Yeah. How do you capture Left and right scenes? just came. And how do you, you, yeah, exactly. Left and right brain just merged and he went, oh, that's how you make a movie and that's how you make a perfect movie and I can do this. To me, Magnolia was the moment where I had that to where it was just like, you have this wildly ambitious script and this guy just working every technical angle that he possibly could and making the most visually audacious film like in his arsenal thus far. I still think for my money, Magnolia's the, the, the wildest mm. uh, visual movie that he, he's ever made while there will be blood is the most focused. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, coming also like there's some real wildness to the style of punch drunk love. Like you said, it's very yeah. experimental. Um, definitely not as just, just not as pretty to look at. I think it's on purpose. Um, it has, I think parts of it are parts of it are that it has this kind of washed out, like Haneke look in moments. Like you're watching all cachet. shot at like the, 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 the earliest hours when the, the sun is just dawning on the San Fernando Valley. When he walks out, like the whole moment when he, uh, discovers the harmonium as it's left in front of his business is, is such an odd, surreal moment. Like, yeah, yeah. You're making that face. Like you don't like it. But to me, I, I no, I, I don't want the moment. It's just, it. No, but it's just the, the sun that you said is glaring and it's just not as, as it's harsh. It's harsh. And then I, I think that if you've ever had been called into work at six in the morning and had to drive there when the streets are empty, like you get what Barry Egan <laughs> is going through right there. <laughs> well, and, and there will be blood is, uh, is so gorgeous. Um, and I mean, Dale Day Lewis, uh, I think I was, you know, saying earlier, I, I get annoyed by a lot of, um, uh, method actors and, and like the way that I'm a method sure. actor, but he, I mean, he's the ultimate. And I mean, I th- Jeremy strong just went through that entire fucking profile to where ev- now he's not a laughing stock, but everybody's kind of like, yo, calm down, bro. Yeah. It's like, just pump the brakes, but he's, you know, his role in this film and he is just the, the heart. I mean, he, this is, I think this out of all the films is the most like, this is about one guy. Like everyone is like circling around him. But for me, plain view is like, it's it's, the least ensemble based. It's it's, very much straightforward. One guy's story. When you don't see what happens to HW when he leaves, like it's when he comes back, it's only, you only see these people, I think it's mostly implied. Like, I think he does a good enough... Again, it's the masterful visual storytelling that's kind of at play is that you can put two and two together when that final time jump happens when you're with H.W. and his future bride hanging out and then all of a sudden you jump cut and they're literally getting married. You can kind of... You know what's going on there and you can fill the gaps in your own head. Oh, you know, very much so. I'm just saying we're not spending time... With them scenes alone, no, yeah, without it's plain all view, almost from plain view's perspective, absolutely. And and you, you know, the son HW disappears as he's older, comes back, and it's the only time you see him. And but he is so. It's it's a thing I, I see in a couple of 
PTA's films is the idea of like the scoundrel, um, a person like Daniel Plainview, and it's definitely in the master as well. I mean, literally, it's what what the master calls Freddie is you're a scoundrel. It's these these almost like bottom feeder losers, you know. What's interesting is that there will be blood, and again, it's where I kind of took issue where you saying that like yeah, even though it's named after. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's Lancaster Dodd character in the master. Like it's Freddie's movie. There will be blood to me is the movie is that it, that you would make if Lancaster Dodd was actually your main character. Yeah. And you just watched his journey. Yeah. You know, because to me, uh, Daniel D. Lewis is one of the great, like uh, American movie monsters in, in this film is that, when I think of his performance, I think more of Bella Lugosi and Dracula or, or, uh, um, Frankenstein than I do, you know, De Niro or anything else, because by the end he, he is a vampire. Like he's just, he's sallow. He's doing nothing but sucking down the, the dark liquid that keeps his body moving forward. He's loveless. Um, he has no has connection no to humanity. Yep. He lives in this giant castle. He realizes that nobody gives a shit about him, but he's his legacy more or less because Daniel Plainview becomes kind of like an avatar for uh, American capitalism and the way that business encroaches on, on the best of American ideals and perverts them. His legacy lives on far after Daniel Plainview's body dies. And he rejects religion the same way a vampire would. A priest comes to him and he murders him in a fucking bowling alley by beating him to death. And like one of the, the last image that we have of Eli Sunday is his head bleeding out. And he's triumphantly going, I'm finished. That's it. I've killed religion. Capitalism has won. It's a really interesting... Um thing that you and I were talking about, I think yesterday that a lot of these films end with the two male characters in a somewhat of a, if not showdown, it's a, it's a confrontation. However, sometimes mostly in a conversation, conversation, a very confrontational conversation. And you have, you have obviously this scene where it is, it is the two warring ideologies of the film, you know, one beating the other to death. It's not. I wouldn't even call it a fight. He chases him around as Eli screams for for mercy and kills him. But then you have a similar moment at the end of the master, the second, the penultimate scene or penultimate penultimate scene, um, where Freddie comes back after having a dream to come to England and to see the master, see Lancaster, and it's this great scene, like you said, where he sings "Slow Boat to China" to him, and it's these two. Oppo- not even opposing, but these two forces in the movie kind of coming together one last time. Two, two men, and definitely it's very sad because there's a, a real love between them. Because I think Lancaster died. You did say there is a. It is about um, how a person who has been somewhat brainwashed and used by a, a cult or a religion, when he's let loose, has like nothing. You know, how do you keep going on? Um, but they do have a genuine connection. I think Lancaster Dodd sees something in the animal side. You are the bravest boy I've ever met. And I, and I think he, there are moments where he means it. That's kind of what's great at watching the film again is there's moments. It's kind of like picking and choosing, like where is he being full of shit? 
And where is he having genuine moments? You know, because I think so much of his thing is a performance. Well, and it's the same with Daniel Plainview, too. Is yes. Like when he just lets his guard down, you actually see the things that uh, emotionally affect him. Like when his son, or his adopted son, again, it's, it's about a guy who forms his own family uh, without giving birth to anybody. He has a surrogate son because his partner dies by getting his head fucking caved in during their, their earliest uh, well-digging exploits. Um, but it's about this guy, more or less, moving forward. But you only see his humanity when these people who have penetrated him before not betray him, but like with HW, like he's injured and he realizes he can't care for him anymore. So he sends him off, which to me is the real turning port point in the narrative of the film, because it's all downhill from there. Yeah. Once he has this thing that is because, you know, the other oil men gone. like yeah. make fun of him being like, oh, it must be cool to have such a cute face to help you sell to all these plebes out here. And like, yeah, that's true. But at the same time, there's a genuine connection that he has with H.W. in the same way that Freddie Quell and uh, Lancaster Dodd have a, a genuine connection. But the other point in, uh, let's say, uh, Daniel Plainview's damnation is when his quote-unquote brother, Kevin J. O'Connor, enters the picture and tries to swindle him. And it's not actually his brother, and he murders him, and that's the end of his humanity there. And he realizes there's just nothing in this world for him. And you see him actually cry, like you watch Daniel Plainview cry, and it's one of the most like weirdly naked uh, performances that Daniel Day Lewis gives to us because you don't see it otherwise. Every other moment with Plainview is this very terse, clenched jawed kind of masculinity because if he doesn't let you in, then he can beat you at all moments. It's the same way when he first meets uh, Eli's brother and he leads him to the, the Sunday uh, plantation where the oil is seeping out of the earth and he can probably strike gold there is that he, you know, he, he uh, enters Paul Dano's character is like, so how much do you think you would pay per acre? And he goes, well, it depends what do we got here? And he, he never gives you a straight answer. And also in the scene, it's this great moment of literally Syrian Hines, just staring daggers through Paul Dano the entire time. But he always has the mentality of the businessman, the guy who's there for, for competition to crush his opponents and to become the most uh, powerful man in American capitalism. And it's only when that, that little bit of guard is let down that we see the human being behind that. I think you get a lot more of that in the master. Yeah. Uh, because it's very much a almost homoerotic bromance between Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix. But like, it's definitely there with D Daniel day Lewis. There's uh, another moment in there will be blood uh, where you were saying about it's always about competition, always about business. Like that's, there's literally a monologue about it. I have a competition in me. There's that, and then the scene when HW comes back and he takes him for the get to get steaks, Ooh. and and the guys from Union Oil are there, and he can't just have a meal with his son. This is this is a, this is going to be about them coming back together. This is supposed to be this like 
moment of you've been waiting for your son, and he has to go over and antagonize. And I he even covers his face so the kid can't hear what he's saying. He puts a blank, he puts a napkin over his face so he can speak freely that his deaf child can't hear what he's saying. I think it also doesn't help that the guy who he's attacking in that scene before, like the reason that he gets under plain view skin is that he brings up his kid. Yeah. The one link to humanity that he actually has. So he never lets that go when he attacks him. And then he like, I beat you. And like, just will just, just needles that guy the entire time. When my kid's back. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's incredible, incredible scene. Well, it's funny. Cause like you said, that's his one, his, it's his Achilles heel is his, is his son specifically where that's what Eli uses during his quote unquote conversion scene, his baptism scene. That's the one thing where he know he can stab, you know, where he can actually hurt Daniel Plainview. I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my child. Now, let me ask you a quick question before we kind of move on to Phantom Thread after this is that what do you think the scene Right before the, the the real climax of the movie, the I Drink Your Milkshake showdown between Eli Sunday and Daniel Plainview, what do you think the scene between Daniel and H.W. means? Where, where H.W. has grown, he comes back to him and talks to him and, and tells him that he's forming his own company. What does that mean to you? Because I just distinctly know what it means to me. I mean, just from a simple narrative standpoint, this is his last chance at humanity. I mean, that's that's the the humanity coming back into the film and saying, "Here's one more chance." I mean, from a classic screen screen screenwriting structure standpoint, like it's actually pretty good because it's like cha- sure. change or die. Well, you want to talk about a downshift, like we were talking about before. Yeah. Like that last act of this movie is like again just a straight up horror thing. Well, because he, yeah, you, the end of your second act is supposed to be the lowest point possible in your film, where your hero thinks all hope is lost, and they either change or they or they die. You know, their soul dies at least, and he makes a choice to stay the same. And I think that when H.W. comes in Act Three to come back as basically to prove to the audience, to prove to us that Daniel's not going to change. This kid has come back and he's coming in peace. Like he really is coming in peace and saying, I love you. Like I love you. And Daniel's antagonizing him from day one and being like making fun of his translator interpreter. Um, That's how I've always interpreted it. It's just like, you have one more chance at humanity. Like this kid actually can be in your life. If, if, but he says, you're now my competition because competition and business acumen trump family and love. Now, like, do you think if he didn't have his own company that, that Daniel would have taken him back? I think it's possible. Yeah. That's the part. I, I do. I do think so. Because the, they do the same exact um, scene in the master where Freddie Quell comes back and does the whole slow boat to China thing, singing to him because it, that move, that moment in the master becomes about them rejecting and being like, because even Amy Adams uh, character says, this isn't a fad. Yeah. This is a more or less like a way of life. And Freddie's like, Oh, these people are so far gone to me. It's almost like, again, the inverse of, of there will be blood to where, um, 
in There Will Be Blood, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is rejecting humanity and more or less finds an excuse to do it. When Once H.W. is like, I form my own company. He goes, oh, now you're my competition. You almost see the light go on in his eyes. He's almost happy to like, hear it. Yeah, exactly. To I was he's right like, about humanity. Now I can fucking crush you because this guy has betrayed me as well by forming his own company. He wouldn't do that if he actually loved me. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. Everywhere. And then in uh, The Master, it almost becomes about... Uh, Freddie Quell coming back and being like, is this guy my savior? Is this the guy that is my soulmate or whatever? And then uh, Lancaster Dodd rejects him by straight out saying, I believe if, if we meet again in another life, we will be mortal enemies and I will go out of my way to crush you. And you just watch Freddie's face be like, we love each other, but man, this guy's just full of shit. And I think Lancaster Dodd knows that he can see he's full of shit and that's why he lets him go. I mean, cause he, or he goes, or you can stay, Yeah, you know? And, and Freddie goes, no. And he goes, maybe in the next life. Yeah. You know? And I think there's, um, and, and if we want to talk more about specifically the master here, um, uh, in this train, you know, that's next, you know, in line. Um, well, we've done just a bunch. That's why I was trying to jump to phantom thread. Well, let's quick. do inherent vice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Before, if, that, if that's cool. Yeah. Because Inherent Vice for me is the the final movie in his his Death of the American Dream trilogy, and is is it fair to say the loosest movie yep. he ever made? I Inherent Vice I watched today for the first time since the theater, and I was. I turned around pretty much 180 degrees, I think, yeah. on this film. Our buddy James Shapiro did the same thing with me because he didn't like it the first time he watched it. And then we went and watched it in 70 millimeter together when they brought it back a couple years after its release again at the Alamo Ritz. And he walked out and was like, what was I thinking? That movie's fucking great. No, I, I think, again, the mindset I was in watching the first time in the theater, I think I fucking fell asleep because it is weirdly paced, you know, and... It, it can be lethargic in moments. Um, yeah. But I think this might be my favorite PTA film um, wow. that became today. Um, Best that, Josh Brolin performance of all time. Josh Brolin is so... Those chocolate bananas. It, oh, my God. There's that scene <laughs> where he's just fucking throat-fucking this thing. And, and Joaquin is just like... It's that long take. Like This... See... This is a film that is genuinely funny from start to finish. Yes. Because you, you and I have talked before about the, the comedy of Boogie Nights, and I have trouble. I While it's funny in the moment, I'm still so uneasy at where it's going. Right. Um, this one never – it's still so – it's so playful the whole time and rarely rests in reality for too long. It is, it is in the world. Yeah, because even the final long take shot between Doc and Shasta ends with Doc chuckling to himself. Yeah, and I don't think it even happened. Like Exactly. She's not there, and I think she's fucking dead. Um, and it's I, – I love – I think it's maybe it's just like when I saw it, I wasn't as into the hardball detective fiction as I am now. I really am into that now. And again, it's big sleep as fuck. Yeah. As you mentioned, it's big Lebowski. It's long goodbye. It's uh, some Travis McGee in there. Travis McGee, uh, Kiss oh. Me Deadly, uh, Hammer, you know, Mike Hammer shit. I think it's it's all there. Well, even some like Hunter Thompson's worked in there, especially oh my with God. fucking Benicio as the as the lawyer coming back. Benicio doing some straight up bio digital jazz shit as an actor in this movie. 
as a naval lawyer, as oh, a maritime God. lawyer. Maritime lawyer. Now, what was really... Well, I think I also, again, just watched this and just enjoyed the scenes as they came. Every scene on its own is entertaining. Like, they're all sure. really funny. They're well-directed. Martin Short. Mar- oh, that scene is so good. The coked-out dentist. It's so... It's just so fucking weird. And again, when you know... Like, you mentioned, again, uh, the big Lebowski element of, like, taking the idea of the episodic nature of a horrible detective. It's like, now you're going to go meet this interesting character. Now, here's your yeah. Sydney Greenstreet, you know? Here's your Peter Laurie character. You go through the this kind of cyclone of confusion of being in a mystery that leads nowhere. Um And it's, like you said, it's so free. And, again, living, you know, taking place in a time that he loves late sixties, early seventies to mid seventies in the Valley. Um, and, but this brings that whole like hippie culture, um, and really leans into it. I think this would be a really good pairing with once upon a time in Hollywood, like post Manson. They keep talking about Manson, how that kind of like bled into 1970 in the seventies is that fear that the LAPD had, um, and the fear America had of hippies going bad. Like this is the dark side of the hippie movement. Um, it's, oh, yeah. it's all there. That was the thing when I actually went on, um, Travis Woods's uh, podcast increment vice that I talked about is, uh, the idea of how, uh, Manson and the fear and how that was the death knell of the sixties. Yes. Idealism kind of bleeds into Pinchon and then, uh, subsequently, uh, Anderson's interpretation of, of Pinchon because, it really is about how like, oh, we were sold a dream and then we were fucking betrayed. Yep. Or and we fucked it up too. Yeah, and we fu- <laughs> we fucked it up more yeah. or less. Um, because even Brolin as the authority figure is like by the end, it is in a bizarre alliance with Doc. Well, again, a penultimate scene. Oh, and he eats of, the fucking uh, weed. of your two male lead characters, two separate ideologies. I mean, it's there. But it's it's different. But it's the same thing. You have a conversation. He kicks that fucking door in, man. Yeah. <laughs> what well, is funny because that was set up. It's like Chekhov's door. Because earlier on, he's like, this guy kicks my door down like once a month, and then you get to see him do it. It's such a like, it's such a great moment, and to see almost like Brolin's character, Big Bigfoot, um, accept the ridiculousness of all this. Of like, man, just fuck it. Like, I don't know. Almost like, yeah, accepting the only way is to kind of burn out. Because it's all so fucked up. Like, yeah. if you try to, like, In play it by the way, rules. It reminds me a lot of uh, the Coen Brothers' A Serious Man. Yes. In oh, the whole very idea much. of, like, accept the mystery of life. Like, you can't fight the forces that are that are working against you. If, if you don't go with the flow, like, you're just going to feel the crushing weight of existence and God upon you. Like, Inherent Vice is kind of treading a lot of the same ground there. I feel like a lot of PTA's films are dancing in again yeah. in, a, in a similar, and I love the Coens. Um, it's it's it actually reminds me back to your comment about you know this is like coked out kind of film school PTA in the first three films, right? Um, I had a uh, my film professor Dave Busan at um, at Denison, one of the smartest guys I ever knew, hated the Coen Brothers. Wow, and he and he but he stood firm. He loved hating them, you know, and I think he liked the later ones, but still wouldn't back down because that was like his thing. But he said, it's, a, it's a, they're student filmmakers with a budget. And I thought it was a little bit harsh, 
but it was that kind of like very like here's the things I'm referencing. Here's what I love. I think he probably said the same about Quentin. Sure. You know, um, I disagree, um, and I I love the Coen Brothers, but I they have a similar tone um, sometimes to PTA, but I they rarely go as dark for me. Um, like, yeah, because you can see stuff like Blood Simple bleeding into you know. Uh, PTA's works and again Lebowski as we've referenced a bunch of times too but like their crime stuff and the fact that even like There Will Be Blood went up against uh, No Country Country for Old Men in the Oscar race like they're very similar films in a lot of ways yeah and that that with and then they would work with Josh Brolin later too a lot so like (laughs) yeah exactly but yeah they're also coming from that same video store indie filmmaker generation. I mean, the Coens obviously were working with like Sam Raimi and shit up in Michigan, making like the evil dead movies, crime wave, crime wave, (laughs) you know, they're, they're these idiosyncratic voices that just kind of emerged from the muck and the, the, uh, let's say afterbirth of the new Hollywood. Yes. So Phantom Thread, how do you feel about the Phantom Thread? I I I watched this today. So it's been a minute. I mean, I saw it when it came out, um, I saw this on 70 at the Ritz. Me too. A couple times, actually. And I really liked it. Because, again, PTA is a kind of director that I try to like every film that he does. Like, again, I'm like, maybe this is the one where I fall in love with him. Maybe this is the one, because I know I should. This one I really liked a lot. Um, I I love the dark romance of it. Um, And, like, you know, I've talked, you know, off now we're not recording of just like the realistic view of what a long-term relationship yeah. you, you, I don't want to steal your idea, but like I never thought of it in that way, but it's completely what it's about. Yeah. It's the, the trilogy is like, so if you think about it, especially in terms of him and Maya Rudolph's relationship is like punch drunk love is you, you meet and like your brain is scrambled and, 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 as a young man, you're anxious. Like even Barry Egan's sisters are all kind of based after because Paul Thomas Anderson grew up in a household, I believe with five sisters. Mm. And he even said that like, it's one of the reasons that like during his process, when he writes movies is that he wakes up at like five or six in the morning to write them before everybody else gets up. Because as he put it, you know, if you didn't get your own shit done before everybody else like woke up, you didn't have a spare moment to yourself. It was always just noise and, and, yeah. and everybody else's problems or conversations or whatever. And you just, you couldn't focus on your, your own thoughts or creative uh, kind of whims, let's say. So like punch drunk love is, is the moment when like the sun dawns on you and all of a sudden all that scatterbrained uh, uh, kind of, fog through that that's hanging over your life is lifted because this one person has done it for you phantom thread which will come because phantom thread what 2017 i want to say so you're 16 years late technically 15 in terms of like the chronology of when the films are released but like probably 16 from when they're actually conceived um coming out so he's been with maya rudolph for like a, a while at this point they have kids together and this is a movie literally about uh, managing a relationship and how I think w- with um, uh, Reynolds Woodcock, which is one of the, 
the great character name. We haven't even gone into the fact oh of my how God. Paul Thomas Anderson might be the greatest namer of characters. Well, of it's all funny because a lot of the names in Inherent Vice are from the book. Yeah. But they all have the style of a, feel, of, of a PTA. Yeah. So you can see he loves that book. Fort Bjornson, Doc Sportello, all those guys, like yeah. Shasta Fay. Like, yeah, they, they feel like they float in the same orbit of the people that he's already invented in his head. But, like, you know, in Phantom Thread, this becomes about, I think Reynolds Woodcock is more or less auto-critique of a guy talking about what it's like to live with a high-functioning creative who has a process, who has a mindset that if you interrupt it, he's all of a sudden the biggest prick that you've ever met in your life. While at the same time, his art can deliver onto you a freeing sensation that makes you look at the world and yourself in a different way because it, it's all told from Alma, Vicky Crapes' point of view. I think that's the other interesting uh, fact about this movie, or at least, at least in- interesting element, is that before this film, every movie that he makes, they're all men. It's all told from a male perspective. Uh, looking out and it all feels like you can pick out the PTA surrogates here and there and how he's working out his autobiographical kind of information and, and, and uh, let's say neuroses on screen with this one, this feels like he wrote a movie about his partner looking in on him and what it's like to manage him and deal with his bullshit And I think that's what's beautiful about it is that he adopts an empathetic position that goes, this is what Maya has to fucking deal with with my ass every day. Like, I'm an asshole when I want to be. But at the same time, uh, to me, it's closest to like David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers in that it's about the symbiotic relationship that you you form with that one person that like, they might drive you crazy, you might want to kill them half the time. But at the same time... You can't live without them and they drive you and they know what makes you tick and they know what sparks your imagination and they, they know what makes you horny. Like I love the whole hungry boy uh, metaphor in there for any time that it's the most sexual, non-sexual movie of all time. You actually don't see any nudity or sex. It's chaste in a lot it's of ways. It's very, very chaste. Like it's an R-rated film. But, like, it's only because a couple fucks here and there that he utters. This could easily be PG-13. But it is him filtering his own uh, point of view through through both a female protagonist and also kind of the works of, like, Merchant Ivory. It's like, when you watch his movies, that's kind of the coolest thing is that you have um, Heart 8, Boogie Nights, and Magnolia are very stylistically linked. They feel like they come from one mind, one point in time in American filmmaking, and like it, one collaborative family, let's say. And then Punch Drunk Love is him trying to break out of that. It, it looks very different from the three movies that, that came before it. And then uh, There Will Be Blood... And the master had this very austere, almost Kubrickian level of control that he employs. Like you still see the old PTA uh, glimpsing through, particularly in uh, There Will Be Blood, because there's a couple long tracking shots yeah. that you can watch that you're like, okay, like this is him being playful. But like the master, there's none of that. The playfulness in there is him using the 65 millimeter cameras oh, God, to gorgeous. do these incredibly long 
like close-ups and also the depth of field and like the panoramic vistas that he creates when the motorcycle Freddy's, scene we talked yeah, about. Yeah, the oh motorcycle scene at the end. Every time Freddy quells like the, the whole intro, like prologue stuff where he's in the Pacific, he's laying on the fucking mast of the ship, like passed out drunk when they're throwing cans at him and stuff. That's him experimenting again, but again, adopting this very austere, detached point of view and, and, and visual aesthetic. With Phantom Thread, like Inherent Vice has that too, but Inherent Vice all looks like it's through the, a fog of bong smoke the entire time. <laughs> yeah. Like you're, you're lost with Doc Sportello, but it, again, still... It marries, it, it comes closest to marrying the, the early styles of PTA, mm. that California hangout, Sunny Valley Boy vibe with the detached, uh, more artistic minded uh, filmmaking that he would employ with his later movies. But like Phantom Thread is 100% him making almost like his version of like a Merchant Ivory production. And it's him being like, this is what it's like to be in a long-term relationship. And this is like my glib little review that I put on after reviewing it uh, or after watching it today that I threw up on Letterboxd is great expectations because it becomes an entire movie about how do partners manage one another's expectations and then how do they manage one another when those expectations aren't reached. And it's just, I, I, I love it to death. Like that whole, you want to talk about a hard final chapter that he has the whole, like when she poisons him and he realizes he has that epiphany that she's the one doing it while she's making the mushroom omelet at the end. You can just watch him watching her the entire time. And even when they're talking, he takes that first bite and he chews and he makes the conscious decision to swallow it. Cause then she delivers that monologue to him where she goes, I want you open. I want you naked. And I want, you to be not be able to care for by anyone but me. You're you're not going to die, but you're gonna want to die, and you're gonna feel like you're gonna die. But I'm gonna be the one to save you and bring you back. You need and the key line there is you need to settle down. And it's just and then he takes the bite, swallows, and goes, kiss me, my girl, before I get sick. And it's like, oh, every time I watch that movie, my heart fucking explodes when they kiss. And I'm like, this is just masterpiece level filmmaking that you can't, you literally can't beat. Like nobody can, most people can't even match it, let alone beat it. It's so funny because as a person who hasn't been in very many super like, you know, married or super, super long term relationships, me, um, I had a similar, I, I do love this film, a similar reaction to seeing uh, before midnight um, where sure. I very much connected to sunrise and sunset um, where it was like, okay, I've been in both those places, you know, of, of returning to a lost love or, or falling in love quickly for the first time. But I hadn't been in a 20, 30, you know, at that point, 20 year marriage or whatever, 10 year. Mm -hmm. And I had a friend who's married. He goes, dude, that's the most realistic depiction of, of late era or even being married for five to 10 years where it's that it's the, it's the work. It's the, it's the struggle. It's not the, like you were talking about the kind of timeline of love between maybe he and Maya Rudolph of, you know, the magic classic cinema, um, romantic 1950s Hollywood of punch drunk love. Then to the, the, the dry merchant ivory tweed, like washed out, like little color, you know, it's a very, it's a very, um, 
Well, it's also the first movie that he shoots himself because he does all like Ellswit's not on this one. He does all of his own cinematography, and it's just incredible looking. Because I guess he shot uh, a couple Radiohead videos, mm. um, I believe, for uh, not in Rainbows, the one that they made. At, I can't remember. Oh, Burn the Witch. Yeah, Burn like, the Witch. Yeah. yeah, like he did that album. And like he was shooting the, the the camera test so that he could more or less teach himself how to uh, shoot his own movies because he'd manned the camera before and stuff, right. but he always had Ellswit with him because he also worked with he shoots a lot of uh, licorice pizza himself mm-hmm. after this um, with one of his camera operators, yeah. Michael Bauman, I believe his name is. I forget, uh, but, but yeah, he, co co cinematographer. If, if you look at uh, Bauman's. Uh, resume he's worked on pta's movies like he's been part of that that collaborative family the entire time but he's been like camera operator assistant here and there and this is him kind of rising up and you can tell just like helping pta shoot it himself it's pretty like if you think about the fact that like pta shot this movie too it's quite the impressive feat what you're saying especially with the austere like merchant ivory Big production, uh, classy production vibe. Oh, in, he shoots it in England too. It's it just the it'd be one thing if he did. If you had told me he went the first one he shot by himself was like Punch Drunk Love, that would make sense to me. Yeah, where it's like I'm gonna be playful. It's I'm him f- fucking. Around. I'm fucking around. Versus like, no, I'm gonna do this one. It's like really difficult and like very locked down. Yeah, you know, as a film, um, I think his. I think his cinematography on licorice pizza makes more sense to me. Um, it's, well, de- it's definitely, let's jump into that for, yeah. for a few minutes before we do questions real quick. Licorice pizza for me, I haven't really gotten a chance to talk to anybody about it yet. Cause I saw it uh, early. I saw it almost two months ago at this point before anybody else had really seen it. And like, um, it's the most show offy of, of his films to me since, Boogie Nights in Magnolia, you can feel that hunger kind of coming back, or at least like only it's channeled through his new laid back uh, kind of like, like let's say smoked out dad persona, like where inherent vice and this are very yeah. in the same world sometimes kind of. Yeah, yeah. It has that same hazy pot smoke feel, but again, it's to me that the, the Final, not final, because I don't know what he's making next. It, this could link back to these movies too, whatever you know the tenth PTA movie is. But like, if Punch Drunk Love is you're falling in love, and then Phantom Thread is about this is the long term relationship. To me, uh, Licorice Pizza is the memories. Mm. It's about when you're the rose hanging out glasses. Yeah, the rose tinted glasses of when you're hanging out with the person that that captured your heart, you love the most, and that you're looking back and like, remember what fucking crazy kids we were and like the the shit that we got into. Like that's what Licorice Pizza is to me. And but there's a lot of these weird show offy moments, like that fucking long tracking shot in the beginning where we meet Gary and uh, Alana. At the high school when she's working as you know an assistant to the photographer on, on photo day for the the school. And then Gary is just this young, fast-talking ch- uh, child actor slash hustler. Like, they meet, but, like, the shot keeps going. 
and going and going. And while I was watching it, I was like, it took me a second to be like, he hasn't cut yet. Like he's just doing this. And it, but it, it feels the most like a guy who knows how good he is now. And he's an aging auteur. He's got the kids. He's got the wife. He's got the reputation. And he's like, let's just, let's fuck around a little bit. Let's have a little fun because he does it again in the convention moment when Gary and all of his buddies are setting up that booth and we're following him through and we saw all the different booths with the, the TV actors and everything and John C. Riley playing uh, Herman, uh, Munster. Herman Munster and stuff. But like he does a similar thing because he's, he's shooting on this very circular convention floor and it takes you a second to realize like, Oh, you you haven't edited yet. Like you're just going for it. And liquor's pizza has that very fast and loose, Let's uh, uh, replicate the the feeling of like a Proustian sense memory uh, vibe that uh, Quentin's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has to me too. Trying to remember what it was like uh, to be a kid in a time period that you weren't quite old enough to remember, but you're, you have idealized in your head. Because I guess all the stories are true and mostly based off of a child actor named Gary Gertzman. His friend. Yeah, his buddy. Yeah. Who told him a lot of it because um, what's her name is even playing Lucille Ball in the movie too. Weird to have two uh, fictional portrayals of Lucille Ball in the same year, by the way, because we also oh. have. And this uh, is not Lucille Ball. It's their version. She's a different name. Well, he in interviews says it's Lucille Ball. She does have a different name. Yeah. He, he renamed her, but like he's like, yeah, it's that obvious. is who it is. But It was like, from All Under Under One Roof. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But did, I love, 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 love this movie because of how, it, this might be a strange word to use, but inconsequential, it kind of feels. It just feels, it's fun. It's a hangout movie. It's real close to American graffiti and dazed and confused and stuff. And you're just in this frequency that he's creating and you either vibe with it or you don't. Well, American Graffiti is one of my favorite movies of all time. And yeah. Days of Confused also. And I love hangout movies. And we talked before, like, I love slashers where it's a hangout movie until someone dies. I love yeah. just teens chilling where the plot's really not going anywhere, just spending time, the bullshit, living through a time that you and I never lived through. I mean, much earlier, um, even an 80s film. We, I was born in 83, so, like, I didn't experience as an, as an even a teen the 80s. So I love... Anything like that. I think what I really liked to this film were its view again on love. Cause while it is, I think I, I like the idea of the sense memory of looking back or, you know, looking back on a, a love at when you're an adult of when, when we first met or a person who's now older, married to someone else of their first love, mm -hmm. you know, of what that, that purity to it, um, especially for Alana's character is, the difference between like intellectual love and like real love, because I think she's an intellectual idea of what she wants in her life and what love looks like. Well, she's the Barry Egan. It actually is closest in, in tone to punch drunk love because she's the female Barry Egan in this movie, because it's, it's, it's about a girl who doesn't know what she wants to do with her life because a lot has been made of like, Oh, she's 25 and Gary Valentine, uh, Cooper Hoffman's character is 15. Is this a work of pedophilia? <laughs> 
more or less. That and Red Rocket. <laughs> yeah. Well, Red Rocket like crosses that line where to me, this movie is very, very innocent. It's it's the crush to where it's about a young kid who sees the 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 first girl who really sets his world on fire. Again, in the same way that when you know, Barry Egan meets um, the love of his life, but then Alana Haim's character is in the same boat that Egan was, is that he's, she sees him and like, she's so confused that maybe it's okay to reciprocate this, but she also knows that like, she's resisting it the entire time. Cause even in the trailer, it gives you the whole, like, is it fucking weird that I hang out with Gary and his 15 year old friends? That's weird. Right? Like she knows that what she's doing isn't normal. Yeah. And I, I think what's interesting, I, I agree on that. And off of that too, she thinks intellectually that being a 25 year old, I mean, maybe turning 26 during the movie is I should be with people my own age. I should be with someone like this guy running for governor and governor, right? Or mayor. Uh, governor. Governor. I believe, yeah. And play, play by Benny Safty. And so there's. Because he's a real kid. Like that. Who he's playing is a real person. Full on real, real person. And it's interesting because you have this moment where she has one of the wilder nights with Gary and his friends where they get in this ridiculous situation with an amazing Bradley Cooper playing John Peters. And after Victorious movie producer slash Barbara Streisand's boyfriend, John slash Peters, hairstylist. Yeah. And, who and, also links the movie cinematically. Like we talk about Altman. Yeah. And uh, like Taxi Driver with this. But like, this is also very much a Hal Ashby movie. Like, or I kept thinking because, of Harold and Maude or Shampoo. Yeah, both because of both of Beatty them. Beatty plays uh, John Peters in that more or less too. Yeah, and but that scene, they're basically kind of trying to get away from John Peters, and they're it's during an oil embargo, and they're trying to get their moving truck away. And she does, amazingly, it's a really cool scene. Drives this um, or drifts this uh this big moving truck backwards down uh the hills of LA just using gravity it's like if sorcerer existed in the American graffiti world yes and then she she gets it down and of course Gary and his friends like oh my god we fucking did it and you see the the toll it took on her and also like how am I here and this is so fucking dumb. This is, this is so what's dumb. going through her head. And she sits there and behind her after, and you see uh, John Peters go by, Redley Cooper go by being ridiculous. And she sees this ad for uh, Benny Safdie's character running for governor. And immediately she's like, that's what I'm going to do. Like that's the, that's the purpose I'm looking for in my life. And through that, I'm going to find a guy through this, whether it be, um, her friend who gets her the position who's older or Benny Safdie's character. And again, disillusionment being the ultimate theme that runs throughout. I think a lot of PTA's films is she's invited. She thinks to a romantic drink with Benny Safdie's character. And she goes, Oh, I'm in like, I'm going to date this guy running for governor. This is my ticket to the top. And realizes... And we are wrong. He's actually a uh, mayoral candidate. Okay, sorry. Mayoral. Yeah. And... She, it's Joel Walks is who's... Joel like. Walks. And she's supposed to go meet him and, oh, wow, this is going to be my moment. And realize that he is with his boyfriend. And the reason people have been following him around is to catch him being... What a heartbreaking scene. It's so, so sad. And there's, this, again, a moment of real humanity where 
her job is to take his boyfriend home as her date to say, oh, you're just picking him up. And he says, men are shit, huh? And she's like, do you, he's like, do you have a guy? She goes, yeah. He's like, they're shit, huh? And she kind of looks at him like, yeah. And gives him this wonderful, and she's like, you're really, he's like, you're so sweet. And she, cause she helped him and, and like made him feel better and was there for him in this moment. And then she goes running for Gary. And I think it's this kind of moment where her intellectual idea of the kind of guys she was going to meet in this new adult world of politics was going to be like, but I think the fact that the, the theme of all men are shit and it's like, but you got Gary. Gary's a shit in his own way. He's not this guy. You know, it's it's kind of the whole joke in Days to Confuse where it's like, man, we get to high school, all the chicks we're putting out. And the high schoolers say, when we get to college, all these chicks we're putting out. It's that theme of like, just when I get to the next level, but it's all bullshit. Well, and it's you know? also like the, the running... Uh, visual motif in licorice pizzas is literally kids running, running, yeah, oh running, running, running. There's so many shots of Alana Haim and Cooper Hoffman running uh, towards whatever they're doing next. And you realize that that's what he's talking about is that it's all about when you're young, you're running from one place to the next, you're running to the next encounter, you're running to the next boyfriend or girlfriend, you're running to the next idea that you have in your head. And she realizes that, what we really should be doing is running towards one another in a strange way. It's the most structurally accessible movie he's made since boogie nights where boogie nights is a rise and fall picture. This is almost a, a pretty typical romantic comedy. Yeah. You, you open with a meet cute, you have the adventures that they go on together. They break apart cause there's a whole great sequence in the 70s style uh, bar where uh, she tries to hook up with uh, Sean Penn's uh, William Holden stand-in, um, goes on that motorcycle uh, riding. Which is an uh, American moment, Graffiti scene. Which is an American Graffiti. And also, uh, the movie's set in, I believe, 1972, which is the same year that Breezy, yeah. the movie that William Holden made where he falls in love with Kay Lenz's Hippie Girl and was directed by uh, Clint Eastwood, comes out. And I, I would be shocked if PTA is not directly referencing that movie with this relationship. Well, he, they were, they're showing it with Alamo. Yeah. Sh- so I think they, he probably told me that this is like, I mean, it's a very it's clear gotta reference be right there, yeah. but I mean like, and I think it's also kind of cool that PTA finally gets to work with Sean Penn after Sean Penn dropped out of uh, punch drunk love. Oh, was he supposed to be Barry? He was supposed to be uh, Phil the Seymour Phil Hoffman, Hoffman character. And also like, you know, uh, PTA's, you know, Penn's other brother has been scoring his movies yeah. and even appears in Boogie Nights. Michael Penn's the the um, engineer that's doing the You Got to Touch oh, song no way. with uh, John C. Riley and Mark Wahlberg when they're and he's just basically like sitting there grimacing the whole time. Which there's a great moment on the Boogie Nights uh, commentary track on that old uh, New Line DVD that they put out where he talks about you know Michael Penn. You know, was really game, said, oh, okay, I'll be on screen. I'm not really used to it because I'm a musician. I'm not like my brothers. I'm not an actor. And the whole direction that he gave to John C. Riley specifically was, I just want you to terrorize this guy. I want you to drive him fucking insane. I don't care what you do. Make sure that he's miserable the entire time. And you watch that scene, you're like, well, they succeeded. But yeah, I mean, Licorice Pizza to me is like, 
in a strange way for as arty as it is, it's the most accessible movie he's probably made since Boogie Nights, just from a, a straight up like nuts and bolts storytelling standpoint, because it's a romantic comedy and it's a romantic comedy about remembering when you first fell in love featuring kids that are in his own, uh, let's say, um, family photo albums and stuff, because uh, not only did he make, you know, he directed all the Heim videos because he's friends with, uh, you know, their whole family, you have Cooper Hoffman, who is Philip Seymour Hoffman's uh, son, uh, may, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman rest in peace. But also he told a weird story uh, during the press rounds for this movie where he talks about when he was a kid in elementary school, I believe it was, he had a crush on one teacher. I believe she was an English teacher. She had this long, wavy brown hair. And that's where a lot of the inspiration for the movie came from, is that his remembrances of, of this, this 70s woman who was so elegant while all the other teachers in there were like the goblins. stereotypical <laughs> like old goblins, yeah, with the glasses and everything. It was Alana Heim and the Heim sisters' mom. No way. It was his teacher. Like that's that's I did where not it comes know. from, which is a who's weird, in the movie. Yeah, yeah, as yeah, herself. Their their parents are in the movie playing the most. Like their dad is straight up doing an Alan Arkin impersonation. Oh. He's so fucking funny in that that moment when she comes in and storms in past them, and he just goes, "What the fuck?" It's so <laughs> goddamn because she's in her bikini. Yeah, yeah, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah." After she's doing like the showcase when they do like the waterbed like opening and everything. I don't know, man. Like I. I love, love, love this movie, and I, I really hope whatever he makes is his 10th film, like, is just as strong. Although I have no doubt, because I, I really feel like his movies run the gamut between very good and stone masterpiece. Yeah. So, you want to get to questions? Let's do it. All right. Questions about 1999's Magnolia. Martin, we're going to breeze through these because, frankly, we're already almost at three hours, which feels appropriate, yeah, for a three-hour and ten-minute opus. Um, so top three PTA for you. Yeah, so I, I, I did say earlier that I thought that Inherent Bias became number one. I'm going to relax for a second. 
the master is still my number one and it has been since I first saw it. I think that's the one that clicked me with the first time. It still clicks with me. I think that I also love films about cults. I just, even though it's not all oh, about yeah. that, I've just always found it fascinating. I also just love, um, it's view of not just like a Scientology like cult, but also religion in itself and the way that you can break someone down. Um, or reprogram or re- them reprogram them. And also just, I think the uh, Im- immorality <laughs> and the, there's something there. Uh, the immoral nature of a group, a group like that, that would not realize what they were doing with Freddie. You know, I, cause I also see like Freddie's is a dangerous person. I think if anyone's right, it's Amy Adams. Like, stop this, stop this, stop this. Like, yeah, we're maybe we're full of shit, but like, this is not the guy we want in our group. Um, my second one would be now inherent vice. I think that one on a second viewing popped really high up my list. Um, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it's got this great energy to it. Like you said, it's one of his, it's probably, if not his loosest, one of his loosest films, uh, a great, companion to the master because you have Joaquin doing two very different roles. Um, I mean, he's this fucking crab in it's like literally this like scuttling crab yeah. in, in the master, like physically just like he, he sparred a lot of that, obviously for the Joker, you could see he used a lot of that his, shot where he's like jerking off in the ocean yep. and his whole body's like hunched over while he's doing it. Yeah. He's like, he's, he's whacking. You see a little bit of his butt crack and also like his shoulder blades are popping out. He's just so bony and gross. Um, well, it, it it's interesting too, because it's like, Freddie Quell, like he inhabits what he is at the beginning of that is a guy who's literally driven both by addiction to, to wanting to drink, going right up to like drinking rocket fuel. Frankly, something I don't uh, still understand to this day. I've never heard of drinking rocket fuel or turpentine yeah. or anything to get drunk, but apparently that was a thing. Um, but also like his whole body is just, it, it, it's about how like he's almost broken down to nothing but id sexual drive, like wanting to put his dick wherever he can. Yeah. You see it from the first scene of fucking this, uh, sandcastle woman and and again, masturbating with guys around. It's like, fuck it, you know, complete. Well, he's, he's complete. He's, he's id. He's, um, just libido just without any kind of thought. Um, number two. So number two, inherent vice, um, number three, there be blood. I think that, I mean, that is a masterpiece. It's might be the best of the three films, but in terms of like enjoyment and the kind of story I like to see, it's my third favorite. I mean, obviously I like it more than the others, but those are my top three. While we're on the subject of the master, I'd be uh, remiss if I didn't include this little bit that was kind of told to me. I don't want to talk too much outside of class and give away who, who told me this story, but I was told that the master as interpreted by uh, another famous director of uh, Anderson's class, you can probably guess which one, but I'm not going to name it, um, is about PTA's Coke dealer. Uh, how when PTA was at the height of like his, like more or less making Magnolia and everything, because if you've ever even seen like the behind the scenes uh, vignettes or, or featurettes on, on the DVD that uh, New Line put out, 
it's clear like he's jacked up the entire time like he's just going a million miles a minute swearing all the time even has to excuse himself like there's this one scene where he's directing everything on the 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 quiz set the set and he's just swearing over and over and over and he's going a million miles a minute and he stops himself he goes oh i'm sorry for saying fuck so much to like the kids and you're like oh my god but this dude's just out of his mind but I was told this odd story about how the master is about he had a Coke dealer that went with him as part of his entourage wherever he went and was like a Freddie Quell type, just this weird kind of, he's a Coke dealer, so shady type who just kind of hung around, but all it took was PTA snapping his fingers and that dude was producing eight balls or doing like the like, liquor he makes in the yeah, movie. Like just yeah. producing whatever he wanted to get him high in that moment to keep him going while he was creating. And that the master was more or less his uh, kind of interpretation of their breakup as because he might have been told by Maya Rudolph, it's either me or cocaine and you got, and you got to hit the road if you choose the latter, let's say. It's like Tabitha King and Stephen King. Exactly. Same Same idea. Yeah. But is that that's what the master is about is him breaking away from this urchin that followed him around the entire time and how he kind of reconciled that in his head and, and, integrated it into this, this movie about Scientology and, and men um, being disillusioned after the war is that it's just as much about his relationship with his addiction and the guy who fueled his addiction. That's interesting because I, I can see that for sure where if you look at the film also from Freddie's point of view of I was lied to. Yeah. You know, you brought me along to get you your stuff because I was cute. You know, mm-hmm. and, and again, no one else likes me but you. Yeah. Because I give you what you need and, and emotionally give you what you need too, beyond yeah. be, beyond the alcohol in the film. But that's really sad. Yeah. It's just that's an sad. interesting interpretation yeah. that was relayed to me is some real weird inside baseball type stuff. Hmm. But again, thought I would be remiss if I didn't mention that at all. Uh, my top three would be Phantom Thread, Boogie Nights, There Will Be Blood. Like nice. just one, two, three. I think There Will Be Blood is in indisputably the best movie that he's ever made. Like you, you look at it and again, it's, it's like watching the Godfather in 72 or, or apocalypse now, or any of those, those great masterpieces of epic uh, masterpieces, the the new Hollywood uh, American cinema that you're like, yeah, you just did it. You made like the grand statement movie of your age, you know, but I just prefer Phantom Thread because of how it talks to me. And Boogie Nights is just such a formative, yeah, like a, kind of what we've talked about before, like electric current to your brain rewiring thing that happened when I saw it for the first time on VHS that it was like, oh my God, you can do this with movies? That's crazy. So yeah, that would be my top three. So double feature. So double feature for me, I'm going to, We've done this before with auteurs, but I'm not going to do Magnolia. I'm going to pick another film from his, his okay. list for Inherent Vice. Um, I'm going to pair it with Naked Lunch um, because two films based on books that were unadaptable. Sure. And as as what I've not read Inherent Vice, but I've read a lot of Naked Lunch. From my understanding, though, it's 
he had to add a lot of his own structure to make it the movie that it was. Well, Naked Lunch is <clears throat> kind of like he mashes, Cronenberg mashes a bunch of stuff together. The biography that, of There's Burroughs. biography of Burroughs in there. There is some Naked Lunch in there, but there's also some Junkie in there too. Like he's he's doing kind of an abstract interpretation of Burroughs's uh, liter- like kind of, let's say, place in the literary world. Yeah. Um, but I thought just two filmmakers who attacked books that people said, you can't do it. Although Pynchon, uh, the inherent vice adaptation is pretty faithful. So like, it, it's a little different, but I yeah. see where you're going with yeah. this too, is that major auteurs filtering these, these great works of literature through their own kind of visions. Yeah. And like, and like you had said, like, you know, making it kind of like a big, I Lebowski would sit through thing. that double feature in a heartbeat. I, mean, I, I love naked lunch uh, a lot. So how about you? Um, I mean, I think the most basic answer for me would be if you're sticking with Magnolias to do shortcuts. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. that would be an exhausting day yeah. at the movie theater. A Nashville also comes to mind. But I mean, like, you would have to do one of the great big Altman epics to really match Magnolia's energy and, and gigantic cast of characters. So those would be the two that come to mind first. Again, that's a lot of cinema in one day, but it would be pretty rewarding. Nashville, though, if I had to watch it every day, I'd be okay with that. Sure. I love that fucking movie. I prefer it to Shortcuts, but I like Shortcuts a lot. So, remake. Yay, nay. No. <laughs> yeah, I well. I don't know. Here's my thing. I would watch the, sh- again, it, it's not quite answering the question, but it's something that I, I even did on the, the last episode, too, um, with Burton Howe, is that, like I would watch a series, okay, uh, maybe with PTA. Not necessarily in this case about the making of Magnolia, but I would watch. Like if you gave me a ten episode Netflix series that was like the Magnolia series, where PTA is just going off in the valley for ten hours or whatever it is, sure, whatever. Remaking it? What are you fucking talking about? You can't do that. This is like one of the most personal, sprawling epics that like honestly after i finished watching it this time i tweeted something along the lines of like i can't believe anybody let anybody make magnolia in the first place so like remaking it seems like an even greater gauntlet because people would be like what are you a fucking idiot like yeah yeah i just i i say a hard no again if he did uh, his own thing of of, of any of his films i'm gonna re or he'd say, hey, I've always wanted to do this version of Hard Eight, like a, a more of a look at like... Or like how Tarantino has threatened a... Like he expanded uh, Hateful Eight into like a Netflix And he has series. it for Once Upon a Time. And he's threatened it with Once Upon a Time. He's he's threatened world world annihilation with a six hour or whatever it is. And I'll Once watch that shit. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch it. <laughs> and I think he has also said like he's going to direct Bounty Law. Like they're going to actually make a Bounty Law series. This could be like a Vega Brothers style. Like I have this idea and it never actually happens. Like the many, many, Kill Bill many, 3. Yeah, things that Tarantino has... has shaking his fist at the sky about before. But like if you, if you let PTA expand Magnolia or Boogie Nights or, or any of his, his early sprawling works for like a streamer, that could be interesting. Yeah. Outside of that, these movies can't be remade because they're like the most singular of visions. 
Like the only thing close I could ever think of in film history is like Luca Guadagnino remaking Suspiria. Is that it's one auteur being interpreted by another auteur. Or again, Bad Lieutenant, Portocol, New Orleans. Yes. I think like that kind of something like weird that. left turn. Now, if you had some like madman, psychopath, like young kid coming in and being like, I'm going to remake Magnolia and I'm going to do it in an even more coked out version than PTA's was, I might watch that. Because again, it's like a young dude in the same way that like PTA in his early career was driven by like having something to prove, always being hungry. Yeah. And that's when he, he made his masterpieces like Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood was because he felt like he had something that he, he had to like reassert himself, let's say. That could be cool, but outside of that, nah, fuck that. So, Face Melter. No. No? Magnolia? No. I mean, and again, it doesn't mean I don't like the film. It's just the same conversation we've had a couple times of... Is this a film I'm going to show to someone who has who has no context? Who's like, oh my god! Now, if I met someone who'd never seen There Will Be Blood, that might be a different story. Like, I know people in my life, if types of people who, if they had never seen us, like, I'm going to show you something. I think that's a face melter because it's like, holy shit! I can't believe that movie's for real. But again, if we're using Hard Target is our kind of like zenith of face melterness. I think we're kind of far off the mark with Magnolia. I'm gonna go with yes. Okay. On mine for the same reason. I think I te- I texted you something along these lines too. Is that for me Magnolia is very similar to what Six String uh, Samurai was for Cody. Yeah. And that it was a young man's movie. It hit you at the exact right point in your life and kind of rewired your brain and was like, Oh, you can do that with movies. That's what Magnolia did for me. Like I watched it and was kind of never the same again. I still have internet passwords for things that are Magnolia. So yes, I am the guy that Kevin Smith was making fun of and Jay and Silent Bob strike back. I am Magnolia fan myself, but like it just, you know, yeah, it, it was. I had never seen anything like this before in my life, and I still get that very vibrant, visceral rush when I revisit it, even as an, an older man at this point. That it's like, you know, it's hard to deny that, and it's. I think it's also hard to deny a work that is this ambitiously personal that he poured everything that was in his brain, like he was never going to make a movie again. Like even the first 10 minutes of that, of, of Magnolia with, you know, where Pat Healy's first character gets beaten to death by Greenberry Hill on the street of Greenberry Hill. And then you get to the Patton Oswalt uh, uh, moment where he's the blackjack dealer who's picked up by the, uh, aerial firefighter while he's scuba diving and then dropped into a tree, even though they met the night before and he fought him at the blackjack table because he thought Pat Oswalt was being a dick and he kept losing money. And then you also get that amazing final uh, story where it's about the kid who they thought was a suicide, but turned into a homicide because his own parents shot him, but he actually loaded the gun that they threatened each other with every time they got into a heated argument. Like the, sheer dynamics and audaciousness of the filmmaking on display in that prologue alone is just, it is cinematic cocaine. Like you're just sitting there like, 
Yeah, let's do it, baby. <laughs> like, I'm ready to party and rip the fridge out of the wall and throw it down the hill. Like, it's just, it's so fucking crazy. And I get that feeling every time or like my pupils dilate and I'm like, oh yeah. Like, I, 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 I to me, that is what a face melter is. So I'm going to go with yes, but ultimately we're going with no because we're split 50-50 on it. You know, again, Martin, you're one of the world's greatest villains. <laughs> Happy to be. <laughs> but you know what? I'm glad. I really love this episode. Thank you for doing this. I know PTA is not one of your favorites, but this has been incredibly rewarding. I enjoyed it. And guys, we'll see you next time for Secret Handshake. Stay tuned. See you then. Should ever leave me, will life would